Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why free labor is a great way of avoiding getting your legs broken. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. If you want to understand where humanity stands today and where it might go over the next 100 years, it pays to have a sub-degree of historical perspective. That's why I think it's so valuable to engage with the work of macro-historians like Ian Morris. They look at history over thousands, tens of thousands, or even sometimes millions of years in order to try to spot the, the big trends and piece together what's actually driving them. Zooming out to consider all human experience since we first came onto the scene helps us to tackle some really difficult questions like why wars are common in some eras and rare in others, why some societies are really hierarchical while others are more egalitarian, and why the industrial revolution started in Europe and not somewhere else. In my view, mainstream intellectual culture is really blinded by its lack of historical perspective. We often can't understand causes and effects in the present day without a comparison group in which the underlying conditions are interestingly and strikingly different, which is something often only studying history can provide. Another reason to engage with macro historians is that they seem to consistently be really entertaining speakers, and Ian Morris is no exception on that point. We cover an awful lot in this interview, and you're welcome to skip around choosing the chapter function if you like, but I expect many of you will simply enjoy listening to the whole thing. We open with a brief discussion of Ian's new book about Britain's geography and Brexit before moving on to the meat of the conversation. That means talking about each of the key planks in Ian's understanding of human history, his expectations for the future, given everything he's learned over his career, his theory of why the way we extract energy might be the main driver of our moral values, and also stepping back and debating whether the methods and evidence used in macro history are really up to the task of answering the questions that we have. Without further ado, I bring you Ian Morris. Today, I'm speaking with Ian Morris. Ian is a British historian who is the current Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. He originally did his PhD at Cambridge, studying ancient Greek culture before teaching at the University of Chicago, moving to Stanford and directing an archaeological excavation in Italy, among many other projects. Over the last 15 years, though, Ian has set himself uh, to explaining his model of macro history, that is trying to understand the big picture changes in human development and organization that have occurred over the over thousands or even, even hundreds of thousands of years in some cases. That enterprise has led him to write, in order, first, why the West rules for now, the patterns of history and what they reveal about the future, then the measure of civilization, how social development decides the fate of nations, then war, what is it good for? Conflict and the progress of civilization from primates to robots. Uh, and more recently, foragers, farmers, and fossil fuels, how human values evolve. Several of those were real hits with the general public, and they've certainly been popular among the smartest people that I know. And not necessarily because they completely agree with all of the conclusions, but uh, rather because they think they make a real good effort to try to answer some of the most important and most challenging big picture questions in history that, that most people steer clear of. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ian. Well, thanks for having me here. I hope to talk about how contingent the course of history is and whether morality is downstream of our economic system. Uh, but first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Well, I've got a new book that's going to be coming out in May and June in Britain and the US. Uh, it's called Geography is Destiny. And I decided to write this book the morning after the Brexit vote. I, I woke up, I, I switched on the computer, everything. So, oh, they've decided to leave the European Union. And, and that, that struck me as kind of a, a bad idea at the time. But I wanted to try to understand why, why people in Britain thought this was a good idea to do it. So I, uh, the, the way I've been working with a lot of my books is by looking at long-term historical patterns and saying, can we identify what the big long-term trends are? And then, if we can, where do they seem to, like they're going to be taking us in the future? And then, if we can figure that out too, can we see countervailing forces that might derail them? And I've been thinking for some years, I, I've written all these books that you just mentioned, and, and they were all basically about 
starting at the small scale where historians and archaeologists normally work and then scaling up and up to make it bigger and bigger to come up with global level long-term explanations. But it, it kept coming to me, you know, these global scale explanations are not really worth a heck of a lot of anything unless you can also scale them back down and take them again back down to the micro level and talk about particular time places. So that's what I tried to do with this British book. And like with a, a lot of the books I've written, I got a heck of a lot of surprises as I was going forward doing it. And probably the biggest one was just coming to see the basic sensibleness of most of the major positions that had been uh, had come up during the discussions about Brexit. It wasn't, as, oh, yes, some people got this absolutely right and some have got it absolutely wrong. And that, once I got into it, I realised, well, that shouldn't have surprised me because this has been what I found with all the other books too, that when you take a longer-term perspective, uh, you don't necessarily, it's not like, you know, to understand all is to forgive all. You don't necessarily forgive people who hold opposite views, but you do start to understand where they've come from. And I realised that what had been going on in Britain in 2016, it was just the latest chapter in a 10,000-year-old argument about where Britain fit into the larger world. And so anyway, that, that's what I've been doing, and that book's going to be out fairly soon. I guess, yeah, what's the uh, geographical feature that, that caused Brexit? I guess, uh, at a guess, possibly the English Channel <laughs> was, uh, was it played an important role. Yeah, that's got a lot to do with it. But yeah, the the debate has basically been driven for 10,000 years. You know, British Isles, it's a cluster of islands off the northwest coast of Europe. You know, nobody's really going to argue about that. That raises a, a bunch of issues. And uh, the, the argument I keep coming back to throughout a lot of my books is how geography drives history. And geography you know, sets the constraints or a lot of what happens. Geography drives history. But at the same time, history drives what geography means. And so the meaning of physical geography just keeps changing through time. And this is what you've got to understand to, to realise where we stand in the world today. So like the, the English Channel, like you mentioned, um, through most of Britain's history, the English Channel was more of a highway than a barrier. It was easier to move goods and people by water than it was by land. So often trade across the English Channel was much more intense than trade over land anywhere within the British Isles, unless you had access to a river, of course. And what this meant was that anybody who had access to the European side of the English Channel also had access to the English side. The Channel was not a barrier of any kind. And one of the big sort of polarities driving British history was the tension between proximity and insularity. So through most of British history, Britain is kind of off to the edge of the larger story. All of the wealth and power and innovation and inventiveness, it's all going off down to the southeast in the Mediterranean, the Middle East, India, ultimately China. And things kind of roll downhill from the south and east to the north and west, ending up in the British Isles. And all of them do eventually end up in Britain because the Channel is a highway, not a barrier. And so this is the basic geographical force that drives almost the whole of British history. But then it changes. And the, the meaning of geography changes. Uh, but this is, you know, on my kind of timescale, super recent event, about 500 years ago, blinking of an eye. Um, the meaning of geography changes because like two things happen. And, and again, this is the kind of the, the biggest story in the book. Geography drives history, but history determines what geography means. And what does the actual determining are these two forces, one of them technology and the other one organization. And what I mean by that is about 500 years ago, people start building ships, galleons, and these ships are, are capable of crossing the ocean. So you can go from Europe to North America now. The Atlantic increasingly is converted from a barrier that it used to be because it's so big, uh, converted into a highway connecting Europe 
to the uh, the Americas. And it becomes this motor of wealth. There's never been anything like this in the history of the planet for just generating wealth in really nasty ways. Basically, Europeans ship Africans to the New World to dig up New World resources to bring them back to Europe to fuel European economic growth. It's not a nice process. But, but this, this changes, it kind of changes the meaning of Britain's geography. Britain goes from being at the margin of the European stage to being potentially at the centre of an Atlantic and even global stage once you've got these ships. So that's kind of the first thing. The other thing is organisational. Um, some people in England, particularly people around Sir Francis Drake, start to realise that, well, hey, if we've got ships that can cross the oceans, these ships can also close the English Channel. Because our big problem in England up to that point has been that um, France, Spain, Rome, all these continental powers, much more powerful than Britain, they can always come across the continent and clobber the British anytime they want to. If you have the organisation, a government able to raise enough revenue to build a fleet that can stay at sea for months on end, you can potentially close the English Channel. And there's these huge debates within England in the 16th, 17th centuries over, well, do we actually want to do that? A lot of people see the benefits of closing the channel, but it comes with costs as well. You've got to have this big, powerful government that can take your money as taxes and throw you in the Tower of London if you don't pay them, all these kinds of things. There's costs as well as benefits to everything. And so they have this huge internal debate and say, yeah, we do want to close the English Channel. And they go ahead and do it. (laughs) With the Channel closed, the English go ahead and unite the whole of the British Isles into one political unit, never been done before, and then go on and dominate um, the oceans and through that, uh, the rest of the world. So geography abruptly changed its meanings. And then, of course, as everybody in Britain is very well aware, it changes back again. Um, In the late 19th, early 20th century, the English Channel is increasingly not a barrier. And in certain ways, the idea of geographical barriers kind of ceases to have a lot of its meaning, especially when you've got ICBMs in the Soviet Union that can drop nuclear weapons on London. Um, Having a big fleet in the English Channel is is kind of beside the point here. So everything changes its meaning as the geography changes its meaning. And this is basically been the story of the whole of British history. And the secret for politicians within Britain and people voting for them is to figure out what does the geography mean? Where is it taking you? This is basically what Brexit was about. It's about what does 21st century global geography mean? And what I suggest in the book is that the question on the ballot in 2016, you know, should the uh, United Kingdom remain within the European Union or not, that was the wrong question to be asking. The question to be asking is, what is the best position for the British Isles in a world where geography now means that China is increasingly becoming the dominant player? And frankly, this whole thing, it's not about Brussels, it's about Beijing. And that, I think, is what people got so tragically wrong and kind of squandered half a decade arguing about bizarre stuff to do with the European Union, when the real issue was, what do we do about the rise of Chinese power? Do we run toward it? Do we embrace it the way uh, the Conservative Party was suggesting at one point? Do we put up the barriers? Do we cozy up to the European Union and negotiate some kind of package arrangement with the Chinese? Do we side with the Americans? These are the questions people should have been worrying about, not questions about politics. Polish plumbers. Yeah. 
I'm very tempted to get distracted by your by your forthcoming book there, but I think we're going to have our, our hands very full in the coming hours just with the books that already exist. So <laughs> I'll resist that temptation and pull us back to the to the ones that I've had a chance to look at. But before we do that, though, I should I should make a confession to the audience that I, with almost all guests, I try to make a real effort to to read the entirety of of the books that we're that we're going to be talking about. In this case, I did slightly struggle because there there was these four enormous tomes. I, I tend to listen to books, and I estimated that it was going to take me 32 hours to finish all of them. And I must admit, I only made it about halfway. Though the most important book, the one that I'm most keen to talk about, Foraders, Farmers, and Fossil Fuels, I, I did get through twice. Fortunately for me, this interview is only going to be three or four hours. It's not going to run for 30 hours. So we will be able to constrain ourselves to just the most effective, altruist, relevant parts of your work. Before we get into reactions to your work and reactions to those reactions, I'd be keen for listeners to get a sense of your worldview at a kind of high level first, which I guess they, they, they've been starting to get a taste of there with, with your answer about Brexit. But your first book, Why the West Rules for Now?, basically tries to explain why it is that Europeans ended up colonizing much of the rest of the world rather than, say, China sailing in and colonizing Europe at the at the end of a gun, which seems like, you know, why wasn't that just as likely? And you try to offer an answer. Yeah. What's the reason you conclude that history went in, in that direction rather than the other? Well, um, Why the West Rules for Now, that was the first book when I began to develop these ideas about the constraining and, and driving effects of geography on history. And so uh, there have been all these debates. I mean, I'd started um, my work working on ancient Greece and universities all over the West have these big departments of classics and Greek and Roman studies. And, and if you compare the size of those departments to say the size of departments studying ancient India or ancient China, or something, the Greek and Roman people, we've got, we, we don't feel this way, but we've got all the resources, all the power, everything is in, in our pockets. And so you, you inevitably you ask yourself, well, why is that? You know, why has my team got all the goodies and the other team hasn't? And the answer, I think, is pretty clear. It's back in the 18th century, when Europeans first start colonizing, taking over the rest of the world, they ask themselves, well, how did this happen? And the conclusion, they have a big argument, but the conclusion they generally come to is there is something unique about ancient Greek civilization that created this special European quality that makes us more scientific, more democratic, just kind of you're better than everybody else on the planet. And that's why we're now taking over the planet, because we're the best. And that um, theory, I mean, it kind of, (laughs) for obvious reasons, this got a little bit unpopular during the 20th century. It's been pushed back into a corner a little bit. But it remains the guiding principle, really, even if classicists won't come out and say it. It does remain the guiding principle. So then we we get this big problem. I mean, starting as early as the 1960s with the Japanese economic takeoff, but then just exploding in the 90s when China comes on the scene. If the explanation for Western domination of the last few hundred years has been that there's something deep-seated, a long-term lock-in on Western superiority going back thousands of years, then what the heck is happening now? Um, if this is innate in Western civilization that the West will dominate the world, how can China be roaring up on, on the West the way that it is? And so it just seemed to me, you know, if you're interested in ancient Greece and Rome, surely this is the fundamental question. Is, are you, what, what is their part in global history? And so I start asking that. And as I do, I realize that I've got to dramatically scale up what I look at up to the whole planet, really. And then also chronologically, that you can't understand this by looking at a few centuries or even a few millennia. You're working on tens of thousands of years scale. So off I go. I plunge um, (laughs) recklessly down this path into all these fields where I know almost nothing about them. And realize, well, I'm just going to have to learn something about these fields. And the conclusion I came to after spending several years thinking about this was that... um, there's a geographical pattern going back to the end of the last ice age, really, um, you know, depending on where you draw the line, somewhere between ten and 15,000 years ago. 
were the first part of the world to have an agricultural revolution and to generate vastly more energy and power than anywhere else in the world. It's the Western end of Eurasia, what we would now call the Middle East. And then from there, that agricultural revolution, things kind of spread out. The Mediterranean basin gets drawn in. Centers of wealth and power migrate from the Middle East into the Mediterranean with Greeks and Romans. Meanwhile, there's independent agricultural revolutions happening in China, India, Mexico, Peru, several other parts of the world as well. But the big fact is the western end of Eurasia got this head start of about 2,000 years over the rest of the world, going down this path toward bigger, more complex societies. So other things being equal, we should not be totally surprised if the western end of the world carries on dominating the planet, because he's just got this huge two-millennium head start over everybody else. But once you get into the details, you realize, well, oh, other things were not equal. And that, again, is one of the big rules of history. Other things are never equal. So other things were not equal. And if it's simply that the West got this head start all these thousands of years ago, then the West should stay ahead of everybody else throughout history. Doesn't happen, though. Um, round about the 5th, 6th centuries AD, CE, Eastern social development, I try to calculate who's ahead, who's behind, develop this index of social development, I called it, kind of just a, a way of quantifying how well different parts of the world, how well they're doing it, basically mastering their environment, getting what they want out of the world. There's all, all kinds of interesting questions connected with trying to work this out. But, but this is what I felt I needed to do. So I got the social development index. Why is it that China catches up on the index around about 1500 years ago? And then the West roars back and re overtakes China again in the late 18th century. So the history, the story is a bit more complicated than it looks at first grasp. And you've got to understand the whole story right from the beginning, if you're really going to have answers to this question. And so, yeah, so that's uh, kind of what got me down this global history path. And once I started looking down that particular way of thinking about the world, while the particularized local histories, uh, I still find just fascinating, obsessively interesting. It's these big global questions, I think, that are the, the real problems that we ought to be trying to tackle. Yeah. So so one of the problems with the, you know, deep cultural roots theory for Western dominance is that it does seem like China was kind of as sophisticated, in some ways more sophisticated than, than Europe, you know, in 1600, maybe 1700 as well. And so then you're like, why did Europe suddenly take off and just blast ahead in, in 1800 when it's not even obvious that like just before that it was it was doing so much better? It seems like there has to be some more proximal explanation for, for what happened. Do you want to explain what your suggested uh, explanation for that is? Yeah, well... Um... Like the big thing that I realized while I was writing that book, Why the West Rules for Now, which I had not grasped this entirely when I started the book, was the way that geography drives the story. But geography is a complicated thing. It's like you say, you know, geography drives history. People, anybody who studied history will kind of give you a funny look at that point because um, they, you know, having read a lot of history, you know, it's a complicated thing. There's stuff going on all over the place. Trends are constantly reversed. How could it possibly be that there's a one-word answer to this question? Why the West rules for now? Answer geography. Um, the the reason there's a one-word answer is that that word is quite complicated itself. Geography is multiple things, and the physical geography, um, so the, the physical geography of the world we're in now, constantly changing. Although it hasn't changed spectacularly since about 6000 BC. Things are basically settling down after the Ice Age at that point. So the basic forms of physical geography have stayed more or less the same for seven, 8,000 years. But what has not stayed the same is the meanings of this geography. And this, again, obviously a theme running through all of my work, trying to understand how the relationship between 
geography, sort of deep forces like that, and the agency of individual humans and the particularities of culture, how these interact. In, in this particular case, you're thinking about Eastern and Western Eurasia over the last 15,000 years. I think the, the big issues here are that the agricultural revolution, for geographical reasons, that happened first at the Western end of Eurasia. And it happened there because that, for geographical reasons, was where the wild precursors of wheat and barley and cattle and sheep and goats, all of these enormously important species of plants and animals, their wild precursors had all evolved in the Middle East. Geography is really unfair. So other things being equal, which of course they're not, but if they were, it would stand to reason that people in the Middle East would be the first ones to discover the secret of domestication, of basically taming the wild world to serve human purposes. And that's exactly what happens. You know, not because Middle Easterners are cleverer than anybody else. It's because geography stacked the deck so that they would almost certainly have the first agricultural revolution. Then Chinese, Mexicans, and they all have their agricultural revolutions later on. But having had that agricultural revolution, what that then does is change the direction that history is heading in, the way societies are developing. And one of the, the big things I think to understand about long-term history is the way that uh, it's a feedback process between the environment and human activity. So that as geography changes what people in the Middle East are doing, that then feeds back into what that geography means. And so you look at the long-term story, all kinds of complicated things going on. But the one that's most relevant, I think, for our story is the way that by the 15th century, geography, it's beginning to collapse. People are beginning to be able to travel much, much longer uh, distances. And it's a sort of ironical story in a lot of ways, which I think a lot of what happens in history is ironical and paradoxical. The, the big breakthroughs in the collapse of space and the conquest of distance, they're made by China. Because by the 12th century, China has emerged. China is now the, the great intellectual economic center on the planet. Chinese have all these phenomenal breakthroughs with um, magnetic compasses, ships with watertight compartments within them. They build the first dry docks. They do all extraordinary things in navigation. They build these great big ships. Uh, but one of the consequences of rising social development is larger and larger intellectual networks. So, of course, everybody else finds out about what the Chinese are doing. Arab sailors in the Indian Ocean pick up on a lot of these ideas. The ideas get to the Mediterranean. There's a little bit of debate over whether Europeans actually invented some of these things independently. I, I tend to think they didn't. So it does all actually come from the East. But Europeans start building ships that they're not like the Chinese ships of the 15th century, because these Chinese things are enormous. They've got so much money to spend. European ships are kind of a joke compared to the Chinese ones. They're so tiny. There's a famous picture, you can find it all over the internet, comparing Columbus's flagship when he sails to the Americas with uh, the Chinese Admiral Zheng He's flagship when he sails all the way to East Africa. And the, the, you can barely see Columbus's ship. It's so tiny. But the, the Europeans, you know, whether themselves or copying ultimately Eastern ideas, they get these ideas of how to build these ships that can cross oceans. And so they've got some of the same ideas now as the Chinese. But of course, Europe is not China. It's a different place. In China, if you build an ocean-going ship and set sail across the Pacific, well, it can be done. We know it can be done. But it's really unlikely that you will do it. You are almost certainly going to end up at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It's an enormous distance. It's just so far. Yeah, it's 8,000 miles. And getting back again is very difficult because of the winds and tides. It's, it could be done, but it's why the heck would you? No sane person is going to launch voyages to do that. Whereas in Europe, 
to get to the Americas is actually not very difficult at all. Once you've got these ships that can do this, 3,000 miles, dramatically shorter. The winds and the tides are kind of obliging if you set sail from Iberia. They're kind of obliging for taking you to the Caribbean. And in fact, one of the, among the first people to discover, quotation uh, marks, the Americas, is this guy who wasn't even trying to go to America. He's trying to get to India. But the only way you can get to India in a ship from Europe is when you're trying to go down the west coast of Africa, you have to swing way out into the Atlantic Ocean because otherwise you're facing these headwinds coming north up the African coast. You just can't get down to the Cape. So you swing way the heck out into the Atlantic. And if you're a little bit unlucky or a little bit incompetent, you run into Brazil. And this is what this guy Cabral does in 1500. He runs into Brazil. And he, like everyone else, is convinced it's not Brazil. He thinks it's Asia. They all think they've gone to Asia. Like Columbus and John Cabot, all these guys, they all think they've gone to Asia. And But then Cabral does this and he starts thinking about this. And he says, you know, this this can't be right. And this is sort of like Amerigo Vespucci yeah. on one of these ships. He's saying, yeah, yeah, you know, this can't be right. This cannot be Asia. And everybody told Columbus, yeah, you can't get to Asia. It's just too damn far to get to Asia. So it's kind of difficult not to run into the Americas. And so the Europeans do, the Europeans discover the Americas, and that is what catapults Europe to the front in development, uh, partly because of all the resources is unleashed. But you, you asked me about the intellectual scientists, you know, China having all these ideas and stuff from modern Europeans in 1500, 1600. What, what happens here is that the discovery of the Americas, the discovery of this North Atlantic highway to the rest of the planet, this thrusts a new set of questions onto Europeans, gives them an importance that they don't have anywhere else in the world. And around 1500, if you'd asked, if you're you know, the famous alien from another world and you come to Earth and said, who is going to develop calculus first? Is it going to be an argument between Newton and Leibniz? Or is it going to be Chinese mathematicians? You probably would have given the Chinese at least equal odds with the Europeans. But the thing is, the Europeans have got a lot more reason to solve a lot of these mathematical questions. If they can figure out how the winds and the tides actually move and what the principles are guiding the movements of the stars in the sky so you can navigate by them better, the potential for wealth is limitless. And, you know, Newton and these guys, they're not doing this to get rich. They're serious scholars pursuing it for the sake of knowledge. But they can get funding in Europe, which they can't always get in other parts of the world. And also, more to the point, what the Europeans, not all of them, but some of them start doing is saying, you know, we don't like guys like Isaac Newton, like the royal family in Britain. They weren't thrilled about this guy. He's weird. All these academics are weird. They believe weird stuff. He's got weird ideas about religion. Technically, he shouldn't really be allowed to be in charge of any of these institutions because he's not a 100% Church of England guy. So we should be shutting him out. But we're not going to shut him out because it's worthwhile taking that risk on these eccentric academics saying stuff we don't like because the potential payoff from these guys is so enormous. And some of the academics themselves see this. You know, Galileo goes down to the shipyard. He talks to guys who make guns and ships because he says, understanding this, this is what my science is ultimately all about. And that, I would say, that's the number one reason for why Europe has a scientific revolution, not China. Not because the Europeans are more scientifically minded or cleverer than the Chinese. It's that geography changes its meaning. New questions are on the table. New incentives to solve these problems. And it just turns out, although no one at the time could possibly have predicted this, that the questions 
that are put onto the European table. These are the ones that turn out to have this huge payoff across the 18th and 19th centuries. Whereas the questions the Chinese are trying to answer, these are not ones that turn out over the next 200 years to be the important ones. I think that is one of the big things, thinking about how you can use history to think about the future, is that we never, you never in the present know what the big questions are going to be 100 years from now. Because of course, how could you possibly know? Yeah. If we knew what it was going to happen, it wouldn't be called research. Yeah, um, exactly. yeah. This has actually taken us through a substantial part of your second book, The Measure of Civilization, <laughs> where you uh, kind of looked over the last 15,000 years and tried to figure out you know, how developed the eastern and western ends of Eurasia were at, at each point in time, uh, and so which, which was in the lead civilizationally in, in, in some sense. Moving on to your third book, though, War, What Is It Good For? You argue there that kind of contrary to common sense and perhaps common decency, a lot of wars in the past actually reduced the number of people dying violently on net. Though, of course, there were other wars that had kind of the reverse effect and increased violent death a, a great deal. Can you quickly explain how it is that war and violence between states can can be violence reducing? Yeah, well, it sounds like a, a weird kind of thing. But um, when I started working on the long-term historical problems, one of the things I realized more and more, the further I got into it, was how much my research, the th- principles guided, how much they were coming to resemble the way biological evolutionists worked. I mean, I'm not, I haven't become a biologist, like I'm not crawling out of my belly studying ants in the desert or anything like that, but the, the principles guiding it was starting to resemble evolutionary principles in the sense of what I mean is that what people at the time think is going on is not necessarily what's going on. Just like, you know, bunny rabbits evolve into new forms, but the bunnies don't have to understand DNA to do this. This happens because of their interaction between sex and natural selection, the environment around you. And realizing that that was kind of the principle driving what was happening in history. And this idea that um, geography drives history, but history drives what geography means. This is very similar to what biologists mean when they talk about an idea they call niche construction theory, which is that, like, say, say the environment changes. Uh, It changes the pressures of natural selection that are being exerted on an animal's reproduction. Different qualities about that animal start to be adapted to give it fitness for the next generation. So say something changes like now running faster becomes a big advantage for surviving the next generation. And so the bunnies that have mutations on their genes, which make them run a little bit faster, their genes are going to spread to the gene pool. Bunnies are going to evolve in a new direction. And this is all done without anybody really understanding what's going on. But then as the bunnies run in a new direction, that starts to feed back into the environment because now all the slow-moving foxes can't catch the bunnies anymore. They die of hunger. So now foxes evolve toward running faster as well. So there's constant feedback between the environment and the behavior of the animals. And this, I realized, seemed to me this was the story driving what had happened with the long-term history of violence. As initially, I hadn't originally planned to write a book about the long-term history of war. I mean, as you might know, writing about war has become very unfashionable among historians. So there's a, a feeling in the academy, if you write about war, you must be a warmonger, you're a wicked person. So I hadn't planned to go down uh, this path, but what had happened while I was writing Why the West Rules, uh, I was giving chapters to various people to read for advice. And I gave a chapter to my wife who read it and I was asking, what do you think of it? And she said, oh, I, I liked it. But I could tell there was a but lurking somewhere in the background here. And so I guess to tell me what the but is. She says, well, the but, why does a lot of 
killing in this story. And this is this really threw me. I think, oh God, have I got it wrong? Am I overemphasizing the violent part of the long-term story? So I go back and I read it over. And I realize, you know, actually, no, I don't think I am. I think that I've got the violence in more or less the right place. You can't understand long-term history without coming to terms with the problem of violence. Why have the attempts to resolve so many of our problems in history being through recourse to violence. And the minute I realised that, I realised I gotta I gotta write something about this. This is clearly this is one of the burning questions of our age. Now what made it more burning was I start reading around in the literature on long-term history of violence and realise there's something profoundly weird about the human animal. Because like lots of species of animals have evolved in directions that make them less likely to use violence. They change into new kinds of animals. Chimpanzees are the ones we uh, know most about. Chimpanzees and this sort of sub-kind, the bonobo chimpanzees, both evolved from a shared ancestor. Chimpanzees have turned into very violent animals. Bonobos turned into extremely, well, they are a bit violent, but compared to chimps, very non-violent animals. And journalists often call them like the hippie chips, the, the make love not war chips, because they rather yeah. than fighting each other, they, they resort to group sex. <laughs> it is quite extraordinary yeah. what they get up to. Um, but so this something goes on all the time. Environmental pressures push your biological evolution toward more or less violence, more different kinds of violence. Humans, we have not changed biologically all that much in the last ten thousand years, and yet the evidence strongly suggests, although there are people who dispute this, but the evidence seems to strongly suggest that our rates of violent death have come down by 90% since the Stone Age. If you lived in the Stone Age, you would have been 10 times likelier to die violently than you are now, which is kind of hard to get your mind around. Um, and actually, the New York Times had a big feature on this just last week, uh, trying to explain to people how this can possibly be when we're seeing about you know, stuff like the war in Ukraine and the news all the time, how it could possibly be that this is the case. But it does seem to be the case. We are the only animal in the history of the world that's evolved to be able to change our own culture through our acts of will. And one of the things we've done is evolve, our cultures have evolved toward generally using less violence. And that has dramatically reduced the amount of violence in the world. And so your question, well, how can war drive there being less war? Well, you look at the long-term history, ask yourself, well, what is driving this decline in the use of violence Overwhelmingly, again, all these things are debated. Everybody's had a different theory. Seem to me overwhelming. The big force driving down rates of violent death is the creation of governments, powerful governments that can provide incentives to people not to use violence. And this, you know, this is not an original idea. A lot of your listeners, I'm sure, immediately recognise that Thomas Hobbes floated more or less this idea in the 17th century. And um, I think Tubbs basically got it right. This has been the driver driving down, overwhelmingly driving down the rates of violent death. Um, governments, so if you want to put it bluntly, say governments scare their people straight. And why do governments do this? It's not because governments are all run by saints, far from it. I mean, the people who create the governments are the masters of violence, the people who are really, really good at using force. What the government does is this, I want you to shut up and go out there and plough your fields and pay your taxes. I do not want you 
killing your family, burning down your neighbour's farm and stealing all his crops and not paying taxes. This is kind of the recurring theme. And so <laughs> if you go and burn your neighbour's farm down, I'm going to come down there with way more force that you can muster. I'm going to murder you. I'm going to sell your family into slavery. I'm going to desolate your farm so that no one will ever live there again. That's the offer I am making you. And people generally say... When, and it's a strong offer. <laughs> yeah, when you put it like that. So this is what governments do. Um, and only our own governments, they don't say it quite so bluntly, but this is what it's about. Ultimately, men with guns will come to your house and kill you if you don't do what the government says. And, uh, the, and the way this works, where do these governments come from? The governments come from violence. The governments come from people using force to set themselves up above everybody else and then say, I alone have the, right, the legitimate right to use violence within this territory. Which is, it's a kind of nasty way to think about history. I think you, you have to focus on the nasty stuff sometimes. It's like we are the ultimate beneficiaries of a really, really long history of violence. And as people in the past used violence and created these larger governments, they changed the environment in which we live and made it into one where using violence on a casual basis becomes less and less profitable, drives the violence down. So, I mean, it sounds like a paradoxical idea that force has created these institutions which then leads to there being less force. But to any evolutionist, they'll say, well, yes, of course, that's how evolution works. Yeah, exactly. So basically, there, there are particular times in history where you get kind of a, an agglomeration of a massive empire, like like the Roman Empire, for example, which is formed through absolutely brutal violence that we could never, never stomach. And yet, once the Roman Empire is formed, once people are like subject to this Leviathan, uh, to, to this immensely powerful government, that government, in the interests of maintaining the empire and raising the taxes and having a powerful army to defend itself and go and conquer other groups, strongly prevents quarrelling between people within the empire and you know even even nobility within the empire who who typically <laughs> tend to feud an awful lot and kill one another terribly frequently when there isn't an emperor and a and a strong military to to stop them and so those yeah you you call those kind of constructive wars or, or productive wars where kind of an, an empire and a strong government is formed of course there's lots of other wars where empires fall apart and there you get not only the the immediate death and destruction caused by the war but then also the loss of order afterwards which results in kind of a double blow where people are both dying during the war and then afterwards as a result of the political consequences. But yeah, it's a very interesting way of looking at things. And you also point out that there's kind of a long-term trend towards stronger states, larger states, and their ability to suppress violence internally, which I guess we see today, where the, the formation of Great Britain was a, an extremely violent process that I'm very glad I didn't have to live through. But now the island that I live on doesn't have an awful lot of murder. I don't have, I'm, I'm going to walk home tonight and I'm not going to be too worried about getting stabbed. You know, slightly, but <laughs> a lot less than I would have in the 16th century. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. But um, I think the, the key thing here, I mean, you, in uh, what you were just saying, you mentioned uh, the Roman Empire being formed through levels of violence that we could never tolerate. They could not stomach this kind of thing today. And I think that's absolutely right. And of course, this is one of the great things about the world that we live in, that on the whole, it's so much more peaceful than in any earlier time of history. But it's not a one-way street. This is, I think, one of the big things. Again, the geography and the development of the societies feed off each other. But nothing is ever set in stone. And the Roman example is this great example of this. The Roman Empire falls to bits. It creates 
this larger, safer world where the rates of violent death with the empire go significantly down, although never down as far as, as what we've seen in, in very modern times. But in so doing, it changes the larger environment and creates these opportunities for, for, for opportunistic actors to use violence in pursuit of their own ends. They would look around the Roman Empire and say, hey, right now, right here on the frontier, there's nobody really in a position to come clobber me if I come in there and just steal stuff because the Roman Empire has become so peaceful. And so, uh, again, it's something which is entirely familiar to evolutionists. Uh, this idea that as as the whole system evolves, it changes the costs and benefits within this, well, they often talk about it in terms of game theory, within the game that all the individual actors are playing. And it may be for long periods, your reproductive success will be highest if you become well, what evolutionists would call a dove, a non-violent actor. But the more non-violent everybody else becomes, the more opportunities there are for a clever hawk, a clever violent actor to step into this situation and score some quick wins. And of course, you run a risk then of provoking everybody else to turn on you. And a lot of, a lot of social scientists look to the rise of Adolf Hitler in precisely this way. The Europe, Western European powers after the First World War make it very clear that the attitude of their government is never again. We will never repeat the horror of the Somme again. And so basically, you're a scumbag like Hitler can look at this and say, oh, opportunities for me. And then you can act forcefully, like he does annexes the Rhineland, moves into the Sudetenland. And if you're a really clever player, you can cash out and maximise. And of course, if you're a complete crackpot, you're not going to do that. You're going to keep going until the weight of the entire planet comes down onto you, which is what happened to Adolf Hitler. So um, it's like you know, nothing is written in stone. No, There's no guarantees of any outcome. Yeah. This theory might, might raise some eyebrows among the listeners, but I will, we'll try to come back to some of those doubts that people might have uh, later on in the, in the conversation. Something that you, this isn't about a book specifically, but something kind of you regularly talk about in your books is that you think history shows that the future could be very different than the present, but also that the future is extremely hard to predict and kind of, and the human enterprise, for better or worse, faces a very substantial risk of both becoming a lot better or completely falling apart. Can you briefly say something about kind of your expectations for the future, like the scenarios that seem plausible to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, when I was writing Why the West Rules for Now, it occurred to me as I was doing this, I developed this index of social development I was talking about. This is a way of measuring how different societies, how effective they were at kind of imposing their will on the world, getting stuff from the world. And uh, it traced Eastern and Western development over time and the way both Eastern and Western development had just exploded since about 1800. But Western development had started doing this slightly earlier and had done it much faster to begin with. And so the West had really leapt ahead and in the 19th and 20th centuries had come to dominate much of the planet in ways that had never been seen before. And this is all kind of cool and fun to do, and I enjoyed it very much. But then it occurred to me at one point, well, could we not project these trends forward and ask ourselves, again, other things being equal, which we know they never are in history, other things being equal, what will happen over the coming hundred years if Eastern and Western development continue increasing at the same rates they have been doing across the last 100 years? And so I do this, I, I get out my calculator and do the math. And um Discover the eastern and western lines after the western development score started pulling ahead so quickly. The eastern development score is now gaining on it and they will cross each other. And in a slightly tongue-in-cheek calculation, I was able to compute this down to the exact year in which the lines will cross each other. Fantastic prediction, by the way. Um, they will cross each other in the year 2103. 
And that, that, the reason this is such a great prediction is it does the two things predictions must always do. Firstly, it's precise. So we get to 2104. And Eastern development has not yet caught up with Western. You will know I was wrong. You will not invite me back on the podcast. On the other hand, in the year 2104, I'm dead. Uh, Any good prediction must play out after the author is dead. This is one of the great secrets of predicting. I like this prediction, though. um, Maybe we've got to get you a cryonics plan so we can hold you to account at some point. Sorry, go on. (laughs) To make this prediction, other things being equal, uh, Eastern development catches up with Western in 2103, or around about the end of this century, let's say somewhere around there. Now, the big thing is, of course, other things being equal. Are other things going to be equal? Well, we're talking about the future, so nobody knows. But uh, you can look at the way these big long-term trends have worked in the past and ask yourself, what kind of countervailing forces do they tend to generate? What kind of things might happen so that other things are not equal or might happen so that other things actually do turn out to be equal? So I start looking at my, my graphs and my trends and I realize there's actually a little bit more going on in this graph just than what I had been talking about so far. When I'm talking about asking when does the eastern line catch up with the western, we're talking here about the horizontal axis, the timeline on my graph. At what point on the timeline do the lines cross each other? What if we look at the vertical axis, the number of points on this development index? Because um, the big thing the huge thing on the development index is the way the scores have jumped so much over the last couple of hundred years, uh, up to the point where now um, the Western development scores run about a thousand points on this development index I developed, and uh, Eastern score is gaining on it. If they carry on upward at the same rates in the 21st century as they did at the 20th, by the times the lines cross, they will both be at around about 5,000 points. So that means a 4,000 point jump in one century, which is roughly nine times the amount of increase that we've currently seen since the end of the Ice Age. Now, that was when my mind truly boggled, when I realized what the implication of the data I'd been looking at were. Five times as much changes in the last century, nine times as much as since the end of the last ice age. And I realized that if if these data are anywhere near reality, bear any resemblance to the truth whatsoever, this means that the coming 100 years is going to see more change in the human condition than the previous 100,000 years have seen. And that, I mean, as you say, this strikes some people a slightly incredible claim to make, just a kind of an absurd claim to make. The very nature of what it is to be a human being is going to change if other things continue in the way they have been doing. But the obvious reason why that is actually not a ridiculous claim at all is that in many ways, the human condition has already changed more in the last 100 years than it did in the previous 100,000 years. And we, we have seen men with no legs running in the Olympic Games. If you'd said that to your great-great-grandparents, they would have said this was magic. We can already intervene into the genetics of unborn children, turn them into something that nature has not made them. This is magic. We already have godlike powers at our disposal. It's just that compared to where they'll be 100 years from now, if other things remain equal, what we're doing now is laughable. It is child's play. So this is where the mind begins to boggle. So the question I had to ask myself is, of course, well, so where, where might this take us? What are the truly paradigm-shattering things that are happening in our own world? And there's a, there's a lot of them. I mean, the nature of violence is actually one of the big ones. The introduction of nuclear weapons into the world, I think, was one of the big things 
driving rates of violence down so dramatically uh, in the, the last 75 years. We, we changed the world we live in in that way. But the, the truly earth-shattering one, I think, is this growing synthesis of genetics, nanotechnology, computing power. You know, we really are changing what it means to be a human being. And um, going back to my obsession with geography, you know, a lot of these changes and these revolutionary transformations have been geographically driven. There's a reason why they've been pioneered in the West. But they are changing the meanings of geography more than just about anything that has ever happened. And so like, we are able to do this podcast. You know, I can see you. And here I am. I'm sitting 6,000 miles away from you. I can see you. I can talk to you. We can do all this magic jiggery-pokery um, with the computers, which, again, unthinkable 100 years ago. I mean, if we weren't able to do this, I could jump on a plane, and it would still be a pain in the neck to fly 12, 13 hours or whatever it is to 11 hours, I guess, to get to London to do this. But compared to taking a wagon train to New York City and then a sailing <laughs> to Bristol, I mean, come on, we have changed the meaning of geography. And a lot of geographers will now say we are on the cusp of robbing geography of its meanings altogether. And this is where the thing just gets absolutely mind-boggling. You know, I wrote this book, Why the West Rules for Now. The answer to the, the question is geography explains it, geography and its interaction with human development. But if I write about this stuff, then the question itself will cease to have meaning. I mean, what is it even going to mean to talk about East and West if we are entering a world where our consciousnesses will all be beamed up to the great database in the sky and we're going to be merged into one giant thinking organism that has trillions of times the cognitive power of all of the humans in the world today combined. You know, we've gone beyond Star Trek. These questions are going to cease to have meaning, if that's what's happening. Yeah. That is the great question. Do we play out the 5,000 points trend or do we play out the zero points trend, which I think is the other alternative. The, the big conclusion I came to is that no middle path is really possible here. We don't get to have a future where it's kind of like the present, but a bit shinier and a bit faster and stuff works better. That is not an option. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have relatively radical views of, of how the future could go, including, like you're saying, like maybe in the future, people will live on the cloud. We'll all be, you know, we'll have our brains uploaded and life will be completely unrecognizable. Or alternatively, we could all be completely destroyed in some absolute catastrophe that literally eliminates the, the species yes. that, that we're a part of. Now, some people have, a, have an intuitive skepticism to that. They're like, these are outrageous claims. These are like, these, these are incredible claims. And I think for some people, the reason that they're so skeptical isn't so much that they haven't thought that much about the future. I think it's in part that they haven't spent a lot of time studying deep history. Because to me, saying that like we could go extinct and everything could collapse or everything could completely change and be very unrecognizable isn't an outrageous claim. Because all I'm saying is that things that have already happened in the past might happen again in future. It's like you look at the past, you say, well, you just see this like constant series of like amazing things happening, the Roman Empire, and then it all just and then it all just falls apart. And so you're like, well, at least like collapse seems like it's like it's a possible option because it's happened it happened so many times before. And you're also thinking, well, couldn't couldn't information technology, couldn't AI, couldn't genetic engineering completely revolutionize the human experience? Because the Industrial Revolution already has revolutionized the human experience so much. Like this would just be a repeat of an event that is completely precedented. And so the the kind of baseline, the the prior skepticism isn't so high that I think the more you know about 
how our typical ages or our age is like in no way typical of the human experience whatsoever. Yeah, so I think the sort of outrageous way to think about the future is to not to think outrageously. That is what's outrageous. Um, everything that we've been living through for 200 years now suggests that one way or another, we're going to see changes that we cannot even begin to imagine. And again, like you said, I think the obvious way to think about this is to Think back and look at how people in the 18th century looked to the future. They had no idea that anything like what we're living through is going to happen. I went to this phase. I got, got obsessed with reading classic science fiction, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells. So I, what did futurists of 100 years ago see and get right? And what did they see and get wrong? And often they get an awful lot of stuff right. But what they don't see, because there's really no way to see, was not like going to the moon and this kind of thing, because that's just a projection forward of current trends, further and faster travel. That was already happening. What they don't see is that there can be something like the internet or that we can get inside the gene and change these sorts of things. Those are absolutely unseeable. And the, the really bad outcomes, there's nothing outrageous about suggesting we go extinct. 99.99% of all the species of animals and plants that have ever existed have gone extinct. So if you think we are not going to go extinct, I think you're living in a fantasy world. We're going to go extinct. The question is, what are the conditions under which we go extinct? And in my books, I started talking about this as a nightfall versus singularity choice. And the singularity is a term that got popularized by thinkers here in Silicon Valley for a, a point, and they would all say in the very near future, where we brilliant technologists are being so brilliant that change starts to happen at a speed that basically becomes instantaneous. Everything changes into everything else infinitely fast, and we get launched forward into this all living on the, the giant database in the sky kind of scenario. That is the singularity. The nightfall um, scenario, I took that name from uh, one of the best science fiction stories ever written by Isaac Asimov. And I'm sure mm. many of your listeners will know this. I've read story. it, yeah. Yes, it's a classic. But basically, every 10,000 years or so, this planet goes mad. Everybody completely destroys civilization, burns it down. They start up again from zero. Actually, the, the, one of the good news things about studying long-term history is you never, we never go back to zero. In the past, at least, we've never gone back to zero. The bad news thing, though, is that, um, well, actually, yeah, continue with the bad news for a moment. The bad news in the past is that every time there's been a major shift in the distribution of wealth and power in the world, like the one we're living through now, the shift from west to east, it's always been accompanied by massive violence, Without exception, massive violence. That's why we all have to hope that I am right in my book about the history of war, that we we have driven down rates of violent death by 90%, we humans. We know how to do it by the building of these big, strong governments. We know what sorts of forces can derail that trend. So for goodness sake, let us not derail it. Let's keep it going. Because the great difference between now and any other historical comparison is now we really do have the power to destroy all life on the planet. Well, actually, I mean, not right now. Uh, some more good news. I mean, since the 1980s, the number of nuclear warheads in the world has come down by roughly 90%. In the 80s, we probably had enough destructive power in our 70,000 nuclear warheads that we had in 1986 to end all life on the planet. Now we don't. We now we probably cannot kill everybody on the planet at one go. Although if we used all the nukes in the world at one go, we could make a major, major dent in life on this planet. Potentially could set off chain reactions that we don't understand. Those are biological reactions that do lead to life going extinct. Uh, we just don't know. We have the power to do this. Nightfall, for the first time in history, nightfall 
shortfall is now a serious possibility if we want to go that way. But we don't have to go that way. We understand enough about history, I think, to know the kinds of things we need to do to avoid it. Yeah. Okay, pushing on to your most recent book, uh, Foragers, Farmers and Fossil Fuels. There you argue that societies develop moral values and moral justifications and systems of organisation that basically allow them to extract the energy source that they're relying on kind of as efficiently as possible or, or as much as possible. Or I guess alternatively, I, I kind of conceptualised it as uh, having moral values that are conducive to producing an awful lot of GDP, at least in the modern world. So on this, on this view, kind of our economic base has more influence on our, on our moral thinking than might be immediately obvious. And perhaps our moral thinking has less influence on the, on the economy than, than it might seem. Yeah, can you flesh out that, that idea a bit? Yeah, yeah, I'd say there's, uh, I think, a bit more to it than that. that. Again, it comes out of this thing about thinking about history biologically. And so um, I was invited to go and do the Tanner Lectures in Human Values at Princeton University, which is run by the Centre uh, for the Study of, of Human Ethics. And um, this is a, a big deal, a big honour with, within academia. So I, I couldn't really say no to it. But I was a bit alarmed when they invited me because I'd never written anything about ethics in my life. So what will I, what, what should I say? And so then I realised, well, I started thinking, well, why did they invite me? And I realised, because well, they invited me precisely because of the kind of work I'd been doing. That... Um, as I turned toward world history and started thinking about history in more evolutionary terms, my explanations became very materialistic. I saw increasingly big forces like geography are so very, very important in driving this story. And some historians were, were kind of horrified by this. They say, well, this is writing human agency out of the story. And so this was why they'd invited me, precisely because I was saying things which were kind of fundamentally opposed to a lot of the work that these ethicists are doing. So I thought, yeah, OK, I need to think systematically about what the implications of my work are for discussions of, of human values and why we are the way we are. And the, the thing that strikes me most about human values is how variable they are. And that you can go to two communities quite close to each other geographically. They will have entirely different attitudes about things like gender relationships, whether hierarchy is a good or a bad thing, all kinds of stuff like this, wildly different ideas about this. The malleability of our values is the thing that really struck me. And I think that comes about because unlike other animals, we have evolved biologically to the point where we can also evolve culturally. We have, we have cumulative cultural evolution, which is something that really no other species of animal exactly has. And so we can think up new ways to do things. We can tweak these and add to them over the centuries. And so just like every other kind of animal, we act in response to the environments in which we live. But unlike any other kind of animal, we can do so cumulatively, changing the way we behave without having to evolve biologically into a different kind of animal. So like when... when Elephants migrate to the edge of Siberia and discover, oh, it's really cold in Siberia. We can't go there. They, they stop until they evolve biologically into animals that are hairy, woolly mammoths, which, of course, they eventually do. And in they go and they live there very successfully. We, on the other hand, humans migrate and spread to the edge of Siberia. They say, oh, it's really cold there. What can we do about this? I know. Let's kill something and steal its skin and fur and wrap ourselves in it. And in we go. And this is precisely what they do. No other animal can do this. So looking at human values, we see not only this tremendous variability between societies, but also these big long-term patterns. So through 90-odd percent of our history on Earth, humans were hunter-gatherers. You're living off wild plants and wild animals, mostly in quite small groups, migrating, moving around a lot to follow wild plants and animals as they move around and, and, and ripen. 
This has severe constraints on what you can do. The amount of energy you can capture from your environment and the fact you've got to move constantly strictly limits what you can do. And what anthropologists have found is that overwhelmingly, not 100%, but overwhelmingly, forager, hunter-gatherer societies tend to be very, very egalitarian. In terms of gender relationships, political relationships, economic relationships, very egalitarian. Why are they like this? Is it because eating wild rice makes you feel like a saint and you want to sing Kumbaya and hug everybody? Well, no, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, It's because we are free to organize our societies in any way that we want. But if you tried to run something like, say, the 17th century, the, the France of Louis XIV, the Sun King. If you try to run that as a forager in the Kalahari Desert, it's not going to work. You can't run your society like that. The people who move toward egalitarian organizational principles flourish better than the ones who don't. And over time, we don't know how much time, people start saying to themselves, well, clearly this is right. This is the way you should run the world. People are all the same. You should treat them all the same. That is only right and proper. But then we have the agricultural revolution. Farming societies come into the world. And farming societies, overwhelmingly, people see the world in an entirely different way. You know, they're staying in one place now. You're growing domesticated plants and animals, generating much more energy. But there's also all these things you've got to do. You can't run these societies unless you build roads, you have ports, you build big ships, you have organization, you have irrigation. All these things got to be done. And there's a lot of different ways to do these things. But the way that historically clearly won out was top-down hierarchical organization. And people in farming societies overwhelmingly, when the evidence allows us to see this, say um, people are all different. And we all know this. Everybody's different. No two people are identical. People are all different. Therefore, the fundamental moral principle should, should be that you treat people differently. But fairness, if you're a hunter-gatherer, fairness means treating everybody the same. In a farming society, fairness means recognizing their differences. And you'll say the pharaoh, the pharaoh of Egypt is so rich, so powerful, that only a complete idiot would say the pharaoh is the same kind of animal that you and I are. The pharaoh is clearly... Well, lots of places they say our kings are like the gods, must be descended from gods. In Egypt, they say, no, Pharaoh is a god. That is the only possible explanation of the world that we see. Common sense tells us Pharaoh is a god. We live in a world where you need a lot of labor in your fields, especially if you're rich and you've got big fields you can't work yourself. But we also live in a world where it's hard to generate enough surplus from agriculture to pay wages that are going to attract free laborers to come and work for you. So what do you do? You go to free poor people and say, here's this deal. Come and work for me or I will break your legs. How about that for a deal? Free people tend to say, mm, yeah, okay, if <laughs> those are, really are the alternatives. And these societies, I mean, this is what we, we see in their literary productions, evolve towards saying, this is actually right and proper. Take Aristotle. You're one of the cleverest guys who ever lived in the history of the world. You think you're cleverer than Aristotle. You're kidding yourself. Aristotle says slavery is natural. The gods made humans so that some of us only realize our full potential when we are working for someone else giving us orders. That is when we become fully actualized humans and other people only become fully actualized by having someone else do the labor for them and going on living this richer intellectual life. And you might say, oh, this is terrible. This is horrible. But this is how almost every society on earth functioned for 5,000 years. 
are they all wrong? This is the question we've got to ask ourselves. And then, of course, what makes it, makes this question so problematic for us is that when the Industrial Revolution happens, we get this explosion of energy. There's this like this debate gets going over what is the best kind of society to generate and to use all that energy. And two big theories come out. One is the Western democratic theory, is that the more you push decision-making down in the hierarchy, the more, the freer you make people, basically, the better everything is going to go. You know, you take away all these old prejudices about gender relations. Women come into the workforce. Hey, you just doubled the size of the labor pool. Um, old prejudices about, oh, you know, Jews should not be allowed to own property or something. Well, it turns out in 18th century England, you start allowing to... Jews to own property. Well, that works out really well for all the other rich people too. Um, all these old prejudices just start disintegrating. Slavery goes from being absolutely natural and reasonable to being absolutely unthinkable in the course of two centuries. Magic. But then you get this other idea, like the Soviet idea, the Nazi idea. No, centralize everything. Run it from the top down. That is the best way to run these high energy, super efficient organizations. You know, this, like, nobody is telling us how to do this. We have to figure it out for ourselves. And yet our decisions are constrained by these vast material forces of geography, of energy. Um, and so it's like we're trying to figure out all the time what is going to be the most productive, most useful, most rewarding for us as individuals way to run these societies. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to forages, farmers and fossil fuels in just a second. But let's for now talk a little bit about kind of historical methodology, because I reckon a lot of people in the audience are probably like quite open to the ideas that we've discussed above being being right. But they might have a bunch of skepticism about how strong the historical evidence can ever be to support such such big picture claims about, you know, so many different societies, so many different places, so many different people, so many different eras. But why might unraveling answers to the kinds of questions that you set yourself and, and tried to answer above be more viable than it might intuitively appear? Yeah, and this is kind of the big methodological question for the kind of work that I started doing. Because in in a lot of ways, asking questions on this scale drives you to being very anti-historical. Even though they're historical questions, you're methodologically, you become anti-historical. Because then what happens with historians and a lot of other academic disciplines is in the 19th century, you get these new skills start getting developed, which are basically about going to the very bottom of the problem, being historical, being scientific about what you're doing. And people start saying, only way we can really know anything scientifically about the past is by going to the archives where all the primary documents from the past are stored and reading all the primary documents that are relevant to the question you're asking, every single one ever produced. You go to the very bottom of the well and then you have a scientifically valid answer to the question. And this is an absolute breakthrough. This transforms the way we do history. It's one of the biggest ideas in the history of scholarship. It's phenomenal. But it does generate a problem which is that as we generate more and more primary data, it gets harder and harder to go to the bottom and read everything. And the sort of questions you're able to ask and answer in this way get narrower and narrower and narrower. Because most make fun of this trend among academics, and rightly so, to get to these ridiculous tiny questions that some people ask. And yet, in a way, that's the only way to be a valid scientist. And so the challenge is, well, how do we hang on to the seriousness of modern scholarship while asking the bigger questions that people actually care about? And so 
when you start trying to answer these things, you're walking this tightrope all the time, that you cannot follow standard traditional historical practice of reading absolutely everything relevant. I cannot read every document, study every individual artifact ever found in the entire study the entire history of the planet. It's just ridiculous to think that. So you start having to behave more like social scientists do or even natural scientists do, which is you take things on trust. You say there are other scholars out there. I'm never going to be an absolute master of medieval Chinese poetry, but there are a bunch of absolute masters out there, some of them at my university. So I have to take things on trust. But the problem is if you are a serious scholar, you know that all other serious scholars disagree about absolutely everything. And uh, this is why I always worry a little bit when I read big history books written by people who didn't start off themselves in old-fashioned traditional academic disciplines. Because if you haven't done that, you just don't know the kind of knife fights that go on in the long grass over these tiny little details. And if you don't at least understand how the arguments have been waged, you're not in a position to say, OK, here I've got three world famous experts disagreeing about the details of the domestication of maize in Mexico 8000 years ago. Which am I going to believe? Whose story is more plausible? And you, you're just not in a position to judge that unless you at least know how the arguments get waged. But the ultimate line, uh, the ultimate answer to your question is you have no guarantees. You never know when you're getting it right. And that's because nobody ever knows when they're getting it right. There's a, a great saying they have in the natural sciences that I think we sometimes forget in the humanities that all science is revisable. No knowledge is ever final. And you've just, you've just got to embrace that. You do your best knowing you're never going to be right. Yeah, I, I guess I thought you might say something around... So obviously you can never know even like all of the details about a single battle, let alone, you know, a, a war or uh, let alone, you know, a single civilization. And you're trying to talk about dozens of them, hundreds of them. But at some level, perhaps of abstraction, a lot of those details don't tend to matter very much. So you can like potentially look at a map of just how the Roman Empire like grew and shrank over time and how the Chinese empires grew and shrank over time and infer things from that. And that big picture information might be more reliable than a lot of the details that people are stuck arguing about. You can just look at the more solid, like simple information and then try to see trends from that. Is, is that is that part of what, what makes this enterprise uh, viable at all? Yes, it definitely is. But I think, uh, again, there's no way you can, as a, as a big historian, there's no way you can honestly cut yourself off from the small history. It does ultimately all funnel back to the small stuff. And like, say, I mean, one of the things I, I like to tell younger scholars who are thinking about going down this path is don't go down the big history path unless you're comfortable with being wrong 100% of the time. Because you <laughs> know that going in. The question you ask yourself, you never ask yourself, am I right about X? Because the answer is always going to be no. The question you ask yourself is, OK, I know I'm wrong about whatever it is I'm saying. The question is, am I so wrong? that this invalidates the larger set of claims that I'm making. But of course, the only way you could ever know, am I so fundamentally wrong about this, is by going back to the little history. So the little history, that's, that's where you generate your hypotheses about the big histories, by reading the little history. And the little history is where you come back to again to test your hypotheses. And so... Um, I was actually just just wrote a paper about this for the journal Evolutionary Psychology. I had this special feature on why evolutionary thinking has not been more successful in humanistic fields. And so the point I was trying to make in this paper about evolutionary psychology is that 
evolutionary history, looking at the big term and thinking about it the way a biologist would think about biological evolution, it's never going to take off until the kind of people doing the little history and the kind of people doing the big history are at least on the same page methodologically and theoretically. And then the people doing the little history will be more willing to say, okay, I can use this as a test of some of these grand theories, which is kind of what you would do if you're an anthropologist. You go off and you study, there's like these famous studies of a group called the Nuer in what's now the South Sudan down in the 1930s. And the guy went off there to study Nuer violence and Nuer politics. And he didn't do this because he was obsessively interested in South Sudanese culture. He did this because he realized that the Nuer, this was a really good laboratory in a way for asking big questions, for actually asking Hobbes's question about how societies without organized governments manage violence within themselves. And he said, if I go and study the Nuer, that might give me this crucial insight onto the answer to this bigger question. And I think one of the difficulties we have with big history at the moment is not enough people who are primarily working at the small scale want to use the small scale to try to answer the big questions, or at least to nuance and clarify the big questions. There is this sort of us and them attitude of people saying, you know, like say uh, uh, Steve Pinker, the evolutionary psychologist, writes this book, Better Angels Than Nature, about the decline of violence. The general response to that among humanists has been to tear it down rather than to say, well, can we test it? If the hypothesis fails to meet the standards um, and gets falsified by my test, what does that tell us? Does it actually mean everything you're saying is wrong? Or does it mean we need to push the theory in different directions, the way somebody would do in physics, for example? So I think this is the sort of ground you get into once you start going down the big history sort of path. Um, It's not just a matter of have you accounted for all the details anymore. Things begin to get much more complicated. Yes, People are often kind of skeptical that we can figure out the causes and effects of different things that are going on around us right now. You know, like who won elections and why? Like, why did people's views about this or that policy issue change? Why did Russia invade Ukraine? People have, you know, stand up fights about that kind of thing as it's going on. It seems like it should be much, much harder to explain things in the past, given that we have, you know, just scattershot artifacts sometimes, sometimes small amounts of written evidence from bias sources and sometimes no, no written sources whatsoever. Yeah, what, what can you say about how, how that isn't quite as fatal, fatal a flaw in, in, in the enterprise as it might seem? Yeah, well, the kind of questions you ask does matter a lot here. And I'd say um, one of the classic things for the ancient Greek historian is this question of why did the Peloponnesian War break out? This war between Athens and Sparta starts in 431 BC. And the historian Thucydides, who lived through it, has this very famous bit at the beginning of his history um, telling us why the war broke out. So this is great for historians. You can assign the, the relevant readings to your students. You can discuss it in the seminar. It's really great. And one of the things that students will normally say is, well, OK, well, we can never answer this question because we just don't have enough information about what different people were thinking. And so what I like to pair this with some of the readings about the discussions of why the US invaded Iraq in 2003, where we are drowning in information. Or actually, an even better one, which I do sometimes use, is the outbreak of World War I in 1914, where stuff, of course, the government documents have been declassified even. So we're just drowning in information. You can never, ever read it all. And yet the question remains the same as for the Peloponnesian War, and the answers remain the same as for the Peloponnesian War. It's like sometimes the sheer quantity of information is not the issue, it's the question. The question like, why did a specific war happen? That we are probably unlikely ever to be able to answer, at least to everybody's satisfaction, because it's not a matter of 
is this one we can answer or not? It's more a matter of how how large a pool out of the interested people are likely to find this answer convincing. Because, you know, there's always going to be some people who say, just will not believe the glaringly obvious truth. So you're never going to convince everybody all the time. But there are some things for which you can provide answers that do convince large numbers of people, or at least some answers will be ruled off out of court altogether. And if you say Winston Churchill caused World War II, the way Adolf Hitler liked to say, that's obviously ridiculous because the chronology just doesn't work for one thing. So some answers are just absolutely ridiculous. But there are answers where you can sort of partially convince people. And then there are much broader answers. Like we maybe can't say why World War I broke out in the specific detail of why it began that day with those particular participants and was fought in that specific way. But we can answer questions, well, why did it become so much more likely after about 1870 that there was going to be a major great power war? Why did so many politicians start saying, oh boy, this is going to happen? And in a sense, it's not like it becomes inevitable, because I would say nothing in history is ever inevitable. It's more like you change the odds. You're rolling the dice all the time. Conflicts are brewing all the time. Before about 1870, on the whole, most European leaders think it's kind of unlikely we're going to have a major great power war, because this system we've got in place, dominated by the British economy, makes it such that the benefits of starting a major power war generally don't outweigh the costs. So it's just it's not li- it's possible, but it's not likely it's going to happen. Then after 1870, increasingly they say, oh my goodness, this is just getting scarier and scarier. And it's like a gazillion reasons why Archduke Ferdinand did not have to die that day in the summer of 1914. So many things. I mean, it's sort of heartbreaking when you get into the details. So many things. If one little thing had gone right, if the the bodyguard had been standing on the fender on the correct side of the car, he wouldn't have died. World War I would not have happened. And yet the odds that something like World War I was going to happen anyway within the next 20 years, it was just becoming overwhelmingly. Every time you rolled the dice, it got more likely that you got a World War I-ish outcome. And so that is the kind of thing I think we can talk about quite plausibly here. The, The general trends, not the specific wars, but the general trends, what made a great power war more likely? Why is it we are now living through a time when a great power war is spectacularly more likely than it was 20 years ago? When you're writing your books and trying to justify some of the kind of claims that you make, do you have a general epistemology that kind of guides you to say, like, this is a strong piece of evidence for the kind of claim I want to make? And like this other thing I'm going to leave out because it's like, this just isn't persuasive enough. Yeah, um, I guess I try whenever possible to talk about the big trends, not specific individual pieces of evidence. And uh, the ideal case is when you can tie the big trends down and say, if I am broadly right, I say with the, the, the geographical argument about the why the West came to nominate, if I am broadly right, then we should see certain sets of things happening again and again and again, and other things not happening so much. Not that they never happen, it's just that they don't happen very much, if I am broadly right. And my thesis can be falsified if you can show that the other stuff which I say shouldn't happen, in fact, does happen. And you know, a gratifying number of times, somebody clever will figure out some way to tie a big theory down to some specific body of evidence and actually test it. That's the gold standard when you can do that. And so like with my theory about the importance of geography, one of the consequences should be that the, the big 
turning points where clearly something major is happening should not really be explicable just by the whims and quirks of one wacky statesman somewhere. And I think that by and large, it passes that test. And that's a really good thing. There's a lot of places where you might test the theory. And one of the classic ones is um, why it is that Europeans rather than Chinese discover the new world. So we're looking at 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries here. And the Chinese famously build these ocean-going fleets that could have got to the west coast of the new world if they'd wanted to. And some historians, some quite famous historians who should know better, will say, oh, it was all the whims of one or two guys. Henry the Navigator, this prince in Portugal, puts a bunch of money into R&D, helps the funding of these fancy new ships. Absolutely true. Chinese emperors decide we're going to close down these big ocean-going fleets and not have them sail thousands of miles across oceans anymore. Absolutely true. But then look at the details. Why do Chinese emperors close down these fleets? It's actually not because a Chinese emperor is a nutcase and a fool and closes them down. <laughs> just, it just happens to hate ships. Well, what, what, personal, it, personal distaste. It doesn't happen once. And this is, the, the, I think, the big thing for big history, things that don't happen once. It happens over and over again. It's not like one time a guy says no more fleets, it stops. Like repeatedly across the 15th century, people come back to the emperor, different emperor each time, say, shall we do this? The emperor, and it's not like the emperor decides, the emperor convenes the top civil servants, the most learned scholars in the whole of the Chinese empire and says, talk about this, should we do it? Over and over again, they come up with the same answer, no, this is a bad idea, let's not do this. The most learned men in the entire Chinese empire keep coming to the same conclusion. Why do they keep coming to that conclusion? Because they're really clever guys. They look at the map and they say, so far as we know, there is nothing to the west from China, right? to the, so the east from China. You sail out in the Pacific Ocean, you're never, ever going to get anywhere. It's pointless. You sail into the Indian Ocean. Now, that's great. There's a lot of money to be made in the Indian Ocean, but you don't need these gigantic fleets. This is like the Apollo 11 moon landings. You don't need this stuff. It's a total waste of money. And of course, judged as you have to judge it by what's happening at the time, they are 100% right. Chinese emperors would have been making a stupid mistake to carry on what they're doing, so they don't. And they keep revisiting it and they keep not doing it. Back in Europe, exactly the opposite geographical forces apply. And actually, even with the opposite geographical forces, Christopher Columbus keeps hawking this idea of sailing west to get to the east. I sail across the Atlantic, I will get to China, because it's not very far. Every expert in the world knows that the world is round and knows roughly how big the world is and says, Columbus, for goodness sake, it's 15,000 miles to China. You can't possibly get there and make a profit on any kind of voyage. So all of the kings keep saying, no, get out of here. Take your stupid idea somewhere else. Till eventually Isabella and Ferdinand in Spain say, oh, for God's sake, we'll give you the money. Just go away and stop bothering us. We'll give you the money. And off he goes, comes back, of course, a year later, says, hey, I went to Japan. And everybody says, wow, every expert in the world is wrong. Columbus did it and went to Japan. And of course, they then realise, oh, no, every expert in the world is right. Columbus was a complete fool. We, Isabella and Ferdinand, were idiots to fund um, these voyages. Historians in the future are going to look at this and say, why were the Spanish monarchs so stupid? 
stupid. And people keep saying this, and we know they keep saying this for decades before they finally start to figure out there's all this wealth to be made in the Americas. So there's a bunch of other test cases like this one, where it's no mystery um, for why things went the way they did. It was driven by these great geographical forces. And occasionally you do get a nutcase who ignores them, but not all that often, and generally it doesn't work out. So that's the gold standard anyway, a falsifiable alternative theory. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because in that case, the uh, the leaders in Europe, they also thought that there was nothing to the West. And so they were inclined to say no as well, just as the as the Chinese emperor was. I guess the difference there was that there was a lot more of them, perhaps. And the, so you had a lot more bites at the apple to potentially go and ask other people over time until one randomly decides to fund you just as a, as a bit of a moonshot. Uh, whereas I suppose in China, maybe... Maybe there just weren't enough different groups with the, with the kind of funding necessary, mm. <laughs> kind of money necessary to, to do it. These things, uh, we could argue all day about this. This is what makes it all so interesting because the, the pushback things here would be, well, yeah, but in China, they, they keep doing it. You've maybe only got one guy to go to, but you go to different one guys over and over again. So there's like seven or eight different attempts they make to do this. They replicate this. And then the other thing with the European cases, okay, say all of the European leaders had been smart and all said no. Is it really credible that no European sailor trying to get around the bottom of Africa is ever going to bump into the Americas? Because we know it did happen in 1500, eight years after Columba. Cabral does bump into Brazil, not knowing it's there. I mean, if you're going to say this is all about the decisions of the individual leaders, you have got to answer this question. What am I going to do? Am I going to build a wall down the middle of the Atlantic? That is the only way to stop geography doing what geography does. And I think that's often the casualty because scholars get split into these us and them camps, the big question people and the the detail people, and they're not willing to go on and ask, what are the second order, the third order counterfactual questions? If if I'm right, what would then happen? Because I think that's what you've always got to do. Yeah, I guess you're very often citing various different kinds of archaeological evidence in in, in your books, including, you know, things from the classical world and and also from, you know, the prehistoric world, uh, really, you know, I think about hunter-gatherers thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. Do you know the total number of archaeological digs that has ever taken place in, in the world? Is that something that anyone's uh, tried to figure out? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I had never thought about that question until you asked. And one reason why <laughs> nobody can answer that question for you is it, it, kind, it all depends what you mean by an archaeological excavation. There is me going and digging a hole in the backyard and finding a native arrowhead. Does that count? And if that counts, then, of course, we're dealing with tens of millions of excavations and then within the, the realm of what we would nowadays, what a professional would call an excavation, there's still a gazillion different kinds of those. So it varies enormously. There's a small number of very high-end, very well-funded excavations. And for that, we're talking hundreds in the world. And then there's a much larger number of which we're talking thousands of pretty professional, reasonably well-funded ones. And then there's like tens of thousands of smaller scale, sometimes very amateurish ones. So the number that the number is astronomical. This is the, the, the big thing. I mean, we have billions, tens of billions of artefacts in storage. The, the last excavation I ran in Sicily, we catalogued over a million fragments of pottery on this excavation. The numbers are absolutely staggering. 
That's yeah. That's okay. That that's interesting. So so there's an awful lot of artifacts there. I suppose yeah. Maybe contrary to the question I was about to ask, the the issue is more uh, how do you interpret this this flood of data? But I guess th- th- there's all kinds of different evidential problems that come up. Like certain kinds of things just don't last at all. Like we have tons of pottery, but uh, I, I think I just some lectures once from some ancient historian who was like, sometimes it just feels like history is a uh, is a, uh, for me as a process of just studying different pieces of pottery. <laughs> like I'm basically just a pottery expert by this point. But th- there's some kinds of things that survive. There's some kinds of things that don't. And there's some kind of things where you're much more likely to dig them up if they were put in a particular place versus dropped somewhere else. And you're much more likely to, have to, to find the remains of someone who was rich than someone who was poor, who just uh, died in a field and, and, and decomposed. So there's kind of selection biases that, that are creeping in. And I guess in some cases, there might be also small data set issues, not, not with pottery, perhaps, but with other kinds of artifacts that we don't have so many of. How much, do you, how much do you worry about this when you're trying to draw lessons from, from the artifacts that we have, that what you might be seeing might be extremely non-representative of what was actually going on in the past? Yeah, well, this is an obvious question for anybody trying to do archaeology, but also not just for archaeologists. This is an obvious question for anybody asking any question about any aspect of anything in the universe. And this is what we always do when you try to understand anything. And historians will sometimes look down their noses and poo-poo archaeologists because our evidence base is so lousy. Because so is the historian's evidence base. And what we have, and I say, you know, character like me working on Greek history, you know, what we have is what people chose to write down in the first place, which is a very small area of experience because writing was expensive in the past. So only a small number of things, and sometimes of really quirky things, and we wouldn't think those are the things you want to write down, but they are. Tiny number of things get written down. Then you've got the whole long transmission process of how that stuff survives and gets to us. And so for any historian anywhere, one of the fundamental problems is always the formation of the textual record. What are they copying out? What is going to what kinds of archives? Where are we choosing to look? This is a huge question too. Same with archaeologists, except the questions are simply different because of different categories of evidence. So for us, of course, preservation issues are huge. Like, so say any pre-modern economy, textiles are one of the biggest sectors of the economy. And yet most contexts in the world, ancient textiles do not survive. So it's like, you know, from the get-go, one of your known unknowns is the textile sector of the economy. Other things tend to be wildly overrepresented, like pottery. We talk about pottery obsessively because in most <laughs> contexts, it survives really well. And so we, it's easy to fall into the trap of whatever you've got a lot of, you think that must be the answer to everything. And again, not just archaeologists by any means. Um, so you, you tend to think that's the important thing. And the, the, the subtlety and finesse of our gradations and sub-classifications of pottery is mind-boggling. Pottery experts, are, I'm reasonably confident not too many of them will be listening, but pottery experts are among the weirdest people walking the surface of this planet. But you know, <laughs> this is what we can do. We can subdivide all the pottery stuff. But you know, archaeology, like any academic field, there's a lot of really smart people in it. And so they understand these problems perfectly well. And so one of the biggest branches of archaeology is what we call site formation processes of thinking about what has happened to generate the archaeological record as it exists physically in the present and its relationship to the activities we actually care about off in the distant past. And when you're actually excavating, this is the thing that is always foremost in your mind because you don't dig up past activities. You dig up this multiply, massively transformed record that exists here in the present. And the last big dig I was running in Sicily, we found these 
stunning quantities of antlers of red deer, only 83,000 fragments we recovered from the site, which is just ridiculous. You should not have that many fragments. And so we've got to try to figure out, oh, what is this about? What are these guys doing with all these red deer? And to make it worse, the fragments we find, it's all small pieces. Some of them have been smashed multiple times, but some of them have been burned and some of them have been drilled through. And they find, we find them in these big heaps, but then sometimes they'll spread out. And so we get into stuff like the angles of the slope we're excavating on, the likely drainage patterns where they carry the fragments, the paving patterns. I became obsessed with what they were doing with paving stones because they have to have moved some of these antlers to do the paving stones. So how did they move the antlers? Why? What were the antlers in before they paved the area? We're pretty sure they were in these big storage jars. What did they, why are they putting antlers in storage? And you go on and you go on. Ultimately, I think we were reasonably confident that through all these transformations, we could say with some degree of confidence, these were used in religious rituals. They were attached to some kind of mask headdressy kind of things and used and then of course the imagination then takes off at that point they're all taking drugs we found fragments of seeds of opium poppies on the site they're all taking drugs they are drunk a lot of the time the, the quantities of wine cups we found again were just mind-boggling and they're using these amplers in these rituals but you know, this i mean th- that's an extreme case the religious kinds of things are always extreme your interpretive cases but absolutely everything you ever deal with goes through this long process of different size meshes sieving things out and also distorting them. And this is just life for the archaeologist. This is just what you do. And so I guess because the, the when you scale up to the global level thing, you are it's not that you're ignoring these problems, it's that you are trusting other people to have done the work well and to have come up with answers are broadly correct, even though if you're a specialist yourself, this is why you can only trust the work done by people who have done the the specialist stuff in the trenches. If you're a specialist, you know perfectly well the heated arguments that went on over every fragment of bone that you're looking at. Yeah. I guess to take one concrete example, it actually seems quite important. I, I didn't imagine that I would uh, end up interviewing a forensic archaeologist on, on the show, but but, but this, is an, uh, this is an important debate that uh, yeah maybe rises to the level that I should speak to someone who's an expert in it. Basically, a lot of listeners will have read or have heard about The Better Angels of Our Nature by, by Stephen Pinker. Where And one of the key pieces of evidence that he offers for the world being less violent now is looking at bone fragments from the past where people will look at the bones and try to figure out how was it that the person died. Very often, they'll show some sign of violent death. Uh, and I suppose if you know, if you have the pickaxe in the skull, <laughs> the person's uh, d- there with the, with the with the smoking gun. Maybe you can say, well, they died because of the pickaxe in their skull. But very often, they're kind of reading between the lines, trying to figure out, you know, this bone is damaged in this way, but like maybe they lived on after that. Maybe they didn't. You know, did they die of this injury or was this a non-fatal injury? And as I understand it, it is reasonably controversial among kind of forensic archaeologists or people who study these kind of ancient bones and try to try to figure out how people died, like whether we really can conclude that, you know, at 10% or something of hunter-gatherers were dying violent deaths or possibly even more. There's one paper that I saw that said uh, from a bunch of forensic archaeologists said that, you know, the mistake of inferring too much from too little is one of the greatest problems in the anthropologist's routine analysis of of bone injuries. And of course, you also have these selection problems that we might be much more likely to dig people up who were perhaps buried in some ritual way that would cause their bones to be preserved. And they might be more likely to be warriors or something like that. I guess, yeah, how much how much do you worry about that when you're studying, say, war and, you know, the increases and, and decreases in violence? Because I suppose, to, to some extent, you're, you're making similar claims or, or you're making similar assumptions perhaps to, to Stephen Pinker that, that violence, at least like tens of thousands of years ago, was really at quite high levels. 
Yeah, yeah, great question. It's a great example of how these sort of meta-level questions about the whole history of humanity, our fundamental nature as animals, can we tame our violent spirits, how they all come down to these incredibly technical, itty-bitty arguments among forensic anthropologists. Uh, And there's just no, no... getting away from them. you can't break the chain and say i don't need to care about that stuff and the, all you can ever do is say i trust the experts to make these decisions and then as you say quite often the experts disagree fundamentally and part of the problem in mean, the, the example you just talked about about the forensic archaeology uh, anthropologists arguing about whether you can draw these broad inferences from these skeletal samples this is just a subset of the larger question about any kind of statistical pattern, whether you're a physicist or an astrophysicist or an archaeologist, all the same. Sometimes people recognise patterns that don't exist. Sometimes people fail to recognise patterns that do exist. They're just two sides of the same area. The answer is, of course, recognise the ones that do exist. But how do we get to that level? And with the forensic stuff, yeah, um, the key thing, I think, with trying to use the physical anthropology of the bodies is compare like with like across large samples from comparable contexts. That's the the golden rule here. Like often people will say, oh, well, there's a a lot of different ways you can die. You could kill me right now in a way that would leave no physical trace of my skeleton. You could poison me, you could stab me through the eyeball. There's endless ways you could kill me. There wouldn't leave a physical trace on my skeleton. However, that is the human condition. That is true of all humans at all times. There have been a lot of ways to kill you that don't leave a physical trace. So first rule is going to be only compare similar lesions across different contexts. So if you might say really limited, say, to finding clearly fatal injuries to the skull across periods. That is the only thing we're going to quantify. That's the only comparison we're going to make. And we know there's a lot of other stuff going on, but that is simply unobservable to us as scientists. We cannot do that. Now, then you can move on to the next stage and you can say, well, okay, the nature of the lesions you are likely to get on the skeletons is going to change over time. In that, say, modern battlefield casualties, say World War I casualties, a lot of them die from head wounds from bullets. If you die from a bullet shot, it tends to be a head wound shot. And so you'll get a skull with a nice, neat hole drilled in the forehead. If you're digging up Roman burials, you get zero skulls with bullet holes in them because they didn't have bullets. So that is not a good comparison. So the more you can understand about the context, the better off you're going to be. But sometimes this is just very difficult. I say um, in prehistoric contexts where people are doing a lot of their deliberate fighting right up in each other's faces, trading blows in their faces. One of the things some archaeologists will say you can use as evidence, others will say no, it's what we call parry fractures. And what a parry fracture is, it's a fracture in your left forearm caused by this instinctive thing. Say you come at me with an axe, stone axe in your right hand, swing it at my head, I instinctively raise my left arm to block your blow. You will break my left forearm. I'll drop my arm. You will have a second go at me and you'll kill me. And so some anthropologists will use parry fractures on the left forearm. Now, if you're fighting on a nuclear battlefield, or even if you're fighting in Ukraine right now, you're unlikely to find all that many skeletons with parry fractures. You will find some, but not all that many. The context determines everything. And this is what makes it so very, very difficult. And then there's like taphonomic, what we call them taphonomic processes, what happens to the body after it's reached a burial in the ground. And then there are pre-depositional forces as well. Well, which bodies get buried under what kinds of circumstances? The more we can know about these 
contexts, the better we are able to interpret our evidence. And there's two big schools of thought. One which says that the only way you can possibly treat this seriously is by marrying the big historians and the little historians and forensic archaeologists and really working together properly to understand all of the context, all of the data. The other school of thought is to say, no, we follow the example of big data people in other fields and say, well, there's all these different factors affecting the formation of the empirical record. We can't control. But the factors are all different in different places. So unless you have got evidence that there is a non-random pattern systematically distorting your evidence, you are perhaps justified in making this rather wild assumption that all the noise will cancel each other out and you can identify a signal underneath all the noise. And in a lot of patterns of scholarship, this has proven to be a reasonable assumption. Whether it's true for doing big history, we don't know. And I think, again, this will be a a big area for work in the future, trying to test whether big data treatments of archaeological material do yield a systematic pattern or not. And it's actually, you can probably tell, I get all excited about this. I could go on for days (laughs) about this. I don't think you're any archaeologist, but there's a lot of really fascinating examples of the detail we get into. But I think maybe these are important questions to raise, but it is also important to recognise that the the academics doing this research, they're not all of them idiots. And people have thought about these problems, even if we can't always answer the question the way we'd like. Um, We are doing our damnedest to come up with convincing answers to these questions. Okay, uh, let's come back and discuss a bit more of Forage's Farmers and Fossil Fuels. Just to remind everyone that that's the book where you claim kind of energy extraction technology is a driver of, of human values, or at least the, the, the way that we've gotten food over time has contributed to how we organize society and what we thought was that was the right way to do that. Yeah. What's the single clearest piece of evidence that you can offer the audience maybe that fossil fuels have been the driver of changes in moral values in the modern world? Yeah, I think just the whole history of the world across the last 300 years, that conclusively <laughs> proves what happened. And so pretty much everywhere on the planet, 500 years ago, there's a general sense that it's right that some people have been set above the rest of us to rule over us. A sense of, like I was saying, this farming world assumption that everybody was created differently. And so it's right to treat people different. It would be morally wrong to pretend that the king is the same as, as you and I. And of course, this is where a lot of the great arguments of political theory in Europe in the 18th century come from. Is it true that the king has actually been anointed by God? I mean, Queen Elizabeth II, in all of her glory, she has been put to rule over her subjects in the United Kingdom because God says so. It's said so at her coronation. She rules gratia dei by the grace of God. If you don't do what the Queen tells you, you're not just committing a crime against the government of the United Kingdom. You are committing an offence against God. And every right-thinking person in the world wants to see you punished in the most horrible way imaginable. Now, when I say that to you now, it's sort of vaguely comical. You know you can get away with saying some pretty rotten things about the Queen on this show. And 99% of the people in Britain are not going to draw you limb from limb when you leave the studio. But 500 years ago, good luck with that. You are going to be executed if you say something really bad about Henry VIII. And um, it's not just Henry VIII. This is the entire world. And so we've got this gigantic question. Why has the world changed so very, very much across 500 years? So if you go around now saying you think 
your, your rulers are given to you by the gods. Most people think you're nuts. You know, we've had some presidents in recent time in the United States who let slip the fact that they think God tells them what they, they should be doing or that astrologers tell them what they do. Generally speaking, it hasn't gone all that well. You know, the world has changed. You know, if you go around, uh, especially a place like where I work, a university campus saying, hey, you know, slavery, slavery's fine. And enslaving people because their skin is darker than mine. Well, yes, of course. What else would you do? And women shouldn't have any of them in the university. And of course, the list on and on and on. All these things change so much. The big question has to be, how does this change? And there, I mean, at least I think there's a lot of room still to argue about whether we have a genuinely convincing causal explanation. But we certainly do have a lot of very, very strong correlations. Where does it start to happen? It starts to happen in the societies around the North Atlantic that, for the reasons I talk about in my book, Why the West Rules for Now, start to see their energy capture go through the roof, even before they crack the secret of fossil fuels after about 1750. Already by 1600, because they are mastering the Atlantic Ocean, places like the British Isles, France, Spain, they're seeing energy capture to begin to take off. Some of them, like the British Isles and the Netherlands in particular, see their energy begin to increase even more because they figure out the most effective ways of channeling all this new wealth, all these new resources coming across the Atlantic Ocean. And when the Industrial Revolution does happen, it's in the countries that have come to dominate the Atlantic economy, especially Britain, especially England, and channel those resources. Uh, They've got all these things they could do if they can just find the way to get the resources going and fossil fuel driven industrial uh, manufacturing and then governments that open up paths within society for fossil fuel manufacturers and their funders. Places that do that see this explosion. And it's not like English people have changed their fundamental moral character. It's just that they start seeing oh, we're doing really well compared to all these benighted Europeans. Why are we doing really well? And some say, well, obviously it's because God chose us, God loves us. That's why we're doing it really well. Others say, well, no, actually. It's because we've got this constitution with a parliament where parliament gets to decide the funding questions. And parliament can only do that if at least the electorate, which varies between you know, a quarter and a third of the male population, our electorate agrees to do this, to take on these burdens ourselves. And then people start saying, well, but there's all these other people getting rich and are taking part in this process as we move into the 19th century. What if we gave them more say in the process as well? And people start saying, yes, the more we widen the franchise, the better we are going to be able to channel and use all this energy at our fingertips. It's not like the energy flows change who you are or somehow make you a different moral being. It's just that they start rewarding different kinds of behavior. And so we certainly, by the end of the 19th century, you've still got people who say women should not vote. You've still got people who say slavery should be legal. But you're starting to look like a crackpot if you say these things. And that is the only force driving this. And again, it's like biological evolution. Nobody is in charge. God has not laid down the principles that animals shall evolve into human beings. And that's the end of the story. Nobody is in charge of this. And so people are making their own decisions. And it turns out that the decisions that people have been making within Britain 
generally in the 19th century, were ones that were very profitable for the British system as a whole, not necessarily for everybody within Britain. But they they were looking at the world, recognising the way geography was taking them, the options open to them, and capitalising on these. With other countries, I mean, some historians will say the Industrial Revolution really should have happened in France or Belgium, not in England. Well, the the mistakes the French and Belgian leaders made had a lot to do with why it didn't. And so I I say this, this is why it all happened. This is the key thing to remember. It's not, I'm not saying, oh, energy flows determine what kind of society you have. Absolutely not. Energy flows, though, set up the costs and benefits of any decision you make. They rig the system so that if you choose the right thing without knowing what the right thing is and with no way to know what the right thing is, you benefit from it. You choose the wrong thing, you pay a very harsh price for it. Yeah. So, I guess applying this theory to the foraging era and the and the farmer era, it seems like you get pretty strong reasons to think that something like this is broadly right. Like to, to begin with, you just notice that farmers around the world, or yeah, people who engage in, I mean, it varies a little bit depending on what they're farming, but farmers across the world seem to have these quite common values that are, that are striking and different than what we had and different than foragers, despite the fact that they didn't seem to communicate very much. And then like, likewise, with foragers all around the world, like quite culturally independent, they don't like inequality, they, they make decisions a particular way, they organize their hunting and gathering in, in particular striking striking ways. And also you have like strong evolutionary reasons. I mean, you're kind of saying this is a sort of evolutionary cultural theory for why it is that we, that we ended up with the values that we have. And, you know, for hunter-gatherers over long periods of time, if there was any group of hunter-gatherers who decided to adopt a set of values that made it very difficult for them to engage in, in, in hunting, hunting and gathering, such that they didn't have very much food and they didn't reproduce very much, well, they're probably going to get like beaten out in some kind of war or conflict over time. Or, or they'll notice that other people are being way more successful than them and they, and they might just decide to copy them. And likewise, with, with farmers over the kind of thousands of years that we were engaged in organized agriculture, you know, organizing up into, into larger states, people who, who decided to organize their societies in a way that wasn't very conducive to agriculture don't have many kids. They're going to get displaced by other places that have a lot more kids and just can field larger armies against them. In the modern world, like those effects seem a little bit weaker. Like to begin with, we have fewer wars now. So it's possible for a country like, I don't know. Australia. Australia could adopt a bunch of values that isn't very conducive to to maximizing its its, its productivity. It could say become anti-feminist Australia, and women are like no longer allowed to add to work, and this impoverishes the country in a sense. But it does, it's not not necessarily the case that Australia would be invaded and, and overthrown, or that people would necessarily have to say, "Well, other countries are richer than us, so we, so we have to change." And I guess we see this, uh, you know, examples of countries that seem quite traditional and backward, and they're not obligated. There's nothing that really forces their hand to modernize. And so some of these like evolutionary pressures seem somewhat weaker, both in terms of competition between groups and families inside a society and between societies, and also just the fact that it's only been 200 years means that there's a bit more slack for people to, to not have caught up. Because these, in as much as the competitive process is, is somewhat gradual, it hasn't, it hasn't flowed out everywhere yet. Do you broadly agree with that, that kind of take? Uh, no, no. The short answer, and this one would be no. Uh, I think, um, <laughs> Fantastic. When, when you think about this stuff, you know, my, my claim is that history works along broadly similar principles to biological evolution. So history is a kind of cultural evolution. Mm. So environment is going to be crucial in this um, sort of pre-existing endowments. Like, so yeah, biology, that would mean the genes that a particular animal has. For us and the humans, it'd be the culture that we've got, the kind of resources that are available. So environment, pre-existing endowments, and then competition. You know, competition is the huge driver in 
biological evolution is sometimes simplified to things like survival of the fittest, which is not, not quite what Darwin meant, but still, competition crucial in this. And there's smart and not smart ways to compete. Like, say if you are a bunny rabbit and you decide a fox is bearing down the hill at you and you decide, okay, man, I'm a one tough bunny rabbit here. The way to compete with this fox is to stand my ground. I'm going to tear that fox's throat out. Not going to go well. You can make poor judgments about the balance between violence and other techniques like running for your life. Um, Different techniques available to you. And this is the same with humans as well. Any human society, even the most violent ones on record, violence is still a minority reaction to conflict. And if all conflict situations result in violence, you would simply go extinct on the spot. It'd be so fast you'd all be over. It's not like that. We we judge the same way other animals do. And I've watched my own dogs doing this. We judge what is the correct, what is the most profitable response to the situation we're in going to be. Like, so say if I were a 17th century English nobleman, and some young guy insults me in the street. Wise response is I pull out my rapier and I kill him. Because if I don't do that, everybody I know will now disrespect me. I will fall so far down. Like a Shakespeare hero, basically. It'd be a disaster. And of course, if a student at Stanford disrespects me and I pull out a knife and kill him, disastrous choice of responses here. Because I live in a world where that is going to be punished viciously. Uh, My life is over, basically, if I I kill somebody. And so what I've got to do now is be good at witty repartee and coming back to that student. And not just that, also good at judging the context. So what is the appropriate kind of witty comment I can come back with. Because if I, like, humiliate this guy, that's really bad for me as well, because professors don't go around humiliating students. That is terrible. If I come up with some sexist or racist remark, that is terrible for me. So, again, you judge all these things. And if you are running Australia right now, I mean, say you you have a real-world problem to deal with here, a lot of your national wealth comes from digging up and selling to China coal. That is really a bad thing in the eyes of many people really a bad thing in the eyes of many people in your strategic sector because you're basically making money off your growingly your main strategic rival you are in the process of destroying the planet by doing this what are you going to do about it that's the sort of problem you've got to deal with and again the same um one of the the many things that president trump said which caused uh, people in the media and academy and other places to laugh at him, was he abruptly announced out of nowhere while he was on one of his own golf courses in Scotland that, you know, our biggest foe right now, he said, our biggest foe is not China, our biggest foe is the European Union. That is our number one enemy right now. And people say, what are you talking about? And part of the problem there was just the way he would express these ideas. But what he was saying, in a certain sense, was perfectly reasonable, that the European Union is one of the US's biggest trade rivals. It's one of its biggest competitors. And it's a very difficult competitor for the Americans to figure out what is the way to deal with this relationship we have with the Europeans. Nuking them is not a good solution. Everybody agrees on that. Don't nuke them. Boycott them. Boycott their goods, the way Trump decided they should do. That, a lot of people think, that's a terrible solution as well. You've got to be smart about this, because America makes so much of its revenue by dealing with the Europeans. Um, You've got to think really carefully about how you deal with them. Okay, so so basically you're saying, although it's rarely the case that people are actually forced through violence or they're kind of compelled to adopt a particular set of values, the modern world puts in such sharp relief the cost that you're paying, not only strategically in a military sense, but also just personally in not having 
stuff that you might like, positive experiences that, that you might enjoy that most people in the long term get on board. And maybe it's that kind of persuasion or that kind of seeing the writing on the wall uh, that has caused a particular set of values to spread pretty far and wide, despite the fact that it wasn't necessarily happening at the at the end of a gun. Yes, I, I think that's very much the case. I mean, I, uh, with the example of hunter-gatherers and farmers, farming societies, uh, they tend to reproduce very quickly compared to hunter-gatherers. They have a lot of babies. The population regularly grows. They expand out into new territory. And when foragers start encroaching into your territory uh, as a hunter-gatherer, you've got a number of choices you can make about what you're going to do about this. And one of them is often you can run away. There's often you know, low population densities. There's often space behind you somewhere. You may not be as good, but you can go hunt gather somewhere else so that's one option but the problem then is because the farmers will continue expanding sooner or later they will catch up with you and there'll be nowhere else to run so okay so say they do that they caught up with us we could stand and fight now looking at the archaeology it seems like that actually is not as common as you might think probably because Farmers have all the advantages. They tend to massively outnumber the foragers. They tend to have more advanced technology, much more advanced organizational skills. So all the advantages are on the side of the farmers. And probably you know, the sort of stuff you see on Cowboys and Indians movies, of the, the hunter-gatherers raiding the farmstead and killing the sheep and so on. That clearly did happen, but less so than you might think. So then another option would be if you can't beat them, you join them. You start settling down and doing what the farmers do. So you start taking on bits of their... Marry into a family, maybe. Yeah, you marry into families or... And again, it's it's often, it's not like a big one-time decision. It's like salami slicing. Like say, you know, I'm a forager. I wander over the fields. I, I know where wild wheat is likely to be growing at a particular time of year. I know where um, the wild gazelles are likely to be migrating through this river crossing where I can catch them. I know all these things. And I will go further or less far each year, depending on what the availability is. Well, these farmers show up and they, being humans, they change the environment in which we live. Because they start putting up fences and cutting down trees and changing the flow of rivers, impacting what you do. The wild animals don't come so much anymore. The wild plants don't grow so well. I have now got a choice. Maybe I will move away. Maybe I will go further to catch up with the gazelles. Or maybe I will do what I see them doing. And they are not just going to where the wild wheat is. They are actively cultivating the wild wheat. They're manuring it. They're weeding it. They're watering it. All these things. And little by little by little step, over thousands of years, we know that's how long it took. That's what I might do. Or alternatively, what increasingly looks like what did happen is... All of the above is going on. But just farmers breed so much faster than the foragers. Their their DNA swamps the foragers. And so like uh, people in the British Isles now, roughly something like, depending on who you are, between 10 and 20% of your DNA comes from the ancestral pre-farming populations. The the other 80% swamped by the farmers whose ancestors have migrated relatively recently from what we now call the Middle East. Yeah, Well, I tried explaining your theory to some of my friends. Uh, Perhaps I explained it slightly inaccurately, but I was kind of saying, you know, farmers, they produce systems of organizations and values that were good for engaging in farming and producing lots of food. So so farmers were extremely anti-feminist in a sense. They wanted women to stay in the home, didn't didn't want them to be working at least in in lots of places. But isn't that kind of throwing out half of your human capital? Like not all farming work has to be done by the absolutely strongest people. Couldn't you have lots of women working out in the field and that will produce even more food and (laughs) produce more babies and and then, uh, then your society thrives even more? Why was it in the interests of farmers to to be quite anti-feminist in a sense? Yeah, yeah, these things are never black and white, either one thing or the other thing. And so I guess what, you know, what I would say to your buddies is, well, farmers were doing everything you say. 
And there's a lot of different ways to farm. And um, one of the, the great discoveries of anthropologists back in the 1970s is looking at farming societies in Africa. A lot of them live in places where there's a, quite a lot of land and not all that many people. And there it makes sense to farm as much of the land as possible, as you possibly can, with as little labour input as possible on each acre of land. Because there's always more land, there's never more people. And so you have low-intensity farming techniques, particularly hoeing the land. You take out a hoe and you, you dig it over by hand. And in that sort of agriculture, women absolutely do it alongside men. At least, uh, maybe not 50% of the time, but getting on for that. Because it's stuff where upper body strength doesn't matter all that much. And the vital thing is there to get as many people as possible onto the land to farm the land. Now, when you, and the more that you settle down and the more babies that you're producing, we see this transition, they call it the Neolithic demographic transition, from forager women to farming women, where the number of live births that the average woman gives goes up from something a little over four to something close to seven as you go from foraging to really intensive full-scale farming. And a lot of reasons for this. One is that nutritional patterns change and so women are more able to have more babies also women's activities you are normally moving around a lot as a foraging wife and that's difficult to do if you've got multiple babies to move around so it's like the, the incentives for having the babies change because now it's less problem having more babies the farm families are getting bigger as they get bigger there's more pull factors. Somebody has got to stay in the house dealing with these babies. And given demographic structures, if you are a woman in a farming society, the odds are overwhelming. You're going to spend your entire adult life pregnant and or minding small children. There's almost no way out of this. Now, you can imagine a society in which men do the bulk of the childcare. That's certainly possible. Also, another thing that happens with farming societies is that agriculture tends to produce foods, like say domesticated wheat to make into bread, that require a heck of a lot of back-end processing. Someone's got to thresh and grind and all these other things you've got to do with your foodstuffs. There's a huge amount of housework. The more that you stay in one place, which is what you do as you go to settle farming, the more obsessive you've got to be about housework. You're, you're a forager, you mess up the cave you're in tonight, well, tomorrow you're gone, you're gone somewhere else. You don't have to worry about rats and all the other things you'll get. Farms, you absolutely do. So way more housework to be done, way more child minding to be done. And we can't observe the logic of what's going through people's heads. That's totally invisible to us. We can only observe the outcome, which is that pretty much every farm society we can document came to the conclusion that the logical way, the most efficient way to do this is going to have the women overwhelmingly become creatures of the household, the men overwhelmingly dominate outside the household. Not 100%. And even in the most intensive agricultural regime, there's going to be things women do in the fields. You're going to see women out there, particularly at harvest time, when labour is at this huge crunch. And it's going to be men doing things within the house as well. You know, men do a lot of things around the house. So it's not an either all kind of thing. But there's a sort of a logic that pushes societies down this path. You don't have to go all the way down this path. And you may be able to carry on. We know lots of examples. Relatively egalitarian farming societies. One where women are relatively free. And actually, one of the nice things about being an ancient Greek historian, there's over a thousand different Greek city-states existed in antiquity. And dozens of them we have some kind of documentation on. It's like they're these natural experiments where you can look at how they do this. And say Athens and Sparta, the two most famous ones, they're both agrarian societies. They both operate more or less by the general rules of farming societies. You would 
never mistake them for foraging societies. But the gender relationships, the political hierarchies, the economic systems, they're very, very different. There's like a, a million ways you can do this. And everybody is free to try out and run these experiments and see what, what's going to work for us best here. It's just that you have to do so within these larger material constraints. And if you veer too far off the path, you get punished. Yeah, I, I guess... Just to clarify for listeners who might not know, of course, farmers often end. The end conclusion is that they end up in this Malthusian situation where the population is just at the level that the that the land is able to support when it's farmed, really quite as uh, at least as well as they have been farming it in the past. And so then, but by the time your population is kind of saturating the amount of land that you have available to farm, then you really don't have much room to move anymore. Because <laughs> if you start doing worse, then you literally aren't going to have enough food next year, and the population is going to reduce because because of lack of food. I don't want to go into this right now, but my understanding is that there's quite a big literature on different kinds of organizations and values. I think including around around um, the role of women based on the crop that was being farmed because of course there's some kind of crops where women can contribute more to the farming outside the house and and others where it's, where it's somewhat more difficult for them to contribute an alternative theory for the reason fossil fuels have kind of trended in the same way with their values that is kind of quite different than this evolutionary story is that fossil fuels afforded people more time to do thinking do learning engage in moral philosophy and also because they were richer it reduced the cost of doing what in their view is the right thing so as people get richer they debate what is right more and i guess you can either say that they can kind of converge on on the truth <laughs> if you believe in that or at least that they converge on the values that humans tend to converge on when they engage in lots of moral reflection and because they're rich they're able to do the things that they think are philosophically right they're able to express their, their values in that way without paying too high a material price what do you think of, of that theory? I think that there's a very good chance that's right. I think that is actually exactly the same theory that I am proposing. Uh, you are saying that... Oh, interesting. Okay. We're arguing, we're agreeing on the ultimate cause, we're disagreeing perhaps on the proximate cause. You are saying that because of fossil fuels, people have all this time to think about their values. And because they have all that time to think about their values, they're able to come up with what might be the, the true correct set of values, which they're able to do because of the fossil fuels providing all the energy that give them the leisure to do this. I I'm saying, yeah, that could very well be it. I think we're not at a point yet where we can say what the mechanism was. And like some people will say, well, it's government action that drives people down this path toward egalitarianism and freedom. There's a bazillion different possibilities, and these are all out there to be explored. But it is actually the same theory. We are agreeing on the ultimate cause. The increase in the amount of energy available transforms modern societies. Uh, I guess I'm putting more emphasis on the competition between people trying out all these different ideas to say, well, what's going to work best? What's going to get us where we want to go? Remembering, of course, all the time that there are every experiment, there's millions of people running and they all have slightly different ideas about where it is they want to go anyway. Um, you're saying you are confident we already know what the proximate theory was, what the mechanism was, and it was this reasoning, logical process. And we can find a million pieces of evidence to support what you're saying. And we can also find a million that don't support it, which is, again, exactly the same situation every big historian is always in. And so, you know, if we were going to pursue this, our challenge would then be to try to come up with some way to ground, say, a com competition theory versus a more cooperative theory, your kind of, you know, we start to recognise what the truth is and and cluster around that. What we need is some clever method that would allow us to ground these theories on the data so that we can do some fancy statistical footwork or whatever, come up with an answer that one of us will be more or less forced to concede. Yeah, you were right, I was wrong. I don't think we're there yet. Although I mean, I'm an optimist about these sorts of things, I think that with sufficient 
number of people applying their thinking to this, we are going to get there. We are going to get to a point where we can broadly speaking agree on, on what some of these immediate causes are. Yeah. I suppose some people could take a slightly cynical or pessimistic lesson from the book, which which would be kind of that, you know, the things, that, the values that we profess to hold, uh, and like in as much as we're engaged in, in what we think are ethical choices, it's guided so much by the pragmatic concerns about what will actually work to, to get stuff done, that it's maybe going to be more work or like less possible to persuade people of like, you know, the moral truth, the like the abstract moral concepts than you might have hoped if you were just a philosopher who makes arguments based on reason. And you might think, well, you know, if, if you want to improve the values of the future, you might think that you should write a book about moral philosophy. But actually, maybe you should be doing research into solar panels in order to change the energy technology or change the kind of actual practical manufacturing technologies that are available, because then that will cause people to have different ideas about what's what's right and wrong. I suppose one that just jumps into my mind is that currently we kind of turn a blind eye to collaborating with horrible countries with terrible dictators that supply us with oil. And if we didn't have to do that in order to get energy, then we would suddenly have the moral realization that that was the wrong thing to do. Um, if if someone in the audience, as I know many of them do, kind of would like to do their bit to shift the values that humans hold in, you know, 2100 in a positive direction from their point of view, what possibilities are most promising for them within the foragers, farmers and fossil fuels framework of, of ethics? Well, you know, I, I would say that one of the, the kind of moral shifts that enabled our modern industrialized fossil fuel democratic capitalistic systems to work. One of the big breakthroughs uh, was in the 19th century to England, when John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham and the other utilitarians around them start saying, you know, the, the big moral truth is that there is no big moral truth. The big truth here is that I don't know what the truth is, and you don't either, and neither of us should try to force the other one to accept our truth. And basically, when Mill and Bentham looked back at history, what they saw was an endless chain of tyrannical dictators convinced they knew what the truth was and willing to use any means necessary to force other people to agree, my God is the best God, or my race is the best race, or whatever it whatever their particular hang-up was. So Mill said, the, the only truth is don't do anything which would infringe on other people's freedom to choose what they think the truth is. That's the big thing to know. And I, I got to say, I know this makes me extremely old-fashioned, but I think Mill and Bentham were dead right on that. And that this is something, again, you know, I, I talked a number of times in, in our discussion about how people don't know what they're doing. Nobody can ever know what they're doing. You never know when your decision, say you're Chinese emperor and you decide to suspend the great fleet sailing to Africa. You have no idea what that's going to mean in 300 years' time. You can't possibly do that. Can't possibly know these sorts of things. That applies to all of us. And so when you ask, well, what can we do in order to bring us closer to a world that we would like to see emerging across the 21st century? Well, I think, how do I know? How do you know? Nobody knows because we don't understand very much about where the forces operating on us are going to take us. I mean, you, you use the example of um, becoming a solo engineer. Now, that seems to me a very practical solution to a practical problem, at least. That uh, I think one thing we can be absolutely clear on is that if we don't do something about the emissions level, global warming is not necessarily going to make humanity go extinct, but it's going to profoundly change this planet in ways that some of which we might turn out to like, but many of them we clearly are not going to like. So we've got a real practical problem here. Yeah, becoming a solar panel engineer is a really good solution to that. If your goal is to introduce a more egalitarian world, 
I don't know whether solar panels are going to get you there or not, and nobody does. And I think the great challenge is we are living through the fastest transformation of everything that the planet has ever seen. I mean, maybe the futurists are right. We're all going to be beamed up to the great database in the sky. Maybe we're going to suck completely non-polluting solar energy out of outer space. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. And what we also don't know, the unknowns piled on top of the unknowns, is what that is going to mean for people's moral values, for the costs and benefits of different kinds of behaviour and for how our evaluation of the world is going to shift. Because again, if we'd been having this conversation 300 years ago and I had told you about the fourth, the upcoming industrial revolution and how this was going to mean that your wife was going to go out to work and you weren't going to be able to enslave anybody anymore and Jews were going to own stuff and you you probably, I you know, would bet you dollars to donuts, you would have been offended by what I said. Because if you were a perfectly normal early 18th century British person, this would have been horrifically offensive to you. And it's easy to think of a comparably offensive things that somebody might say now. Because we don't see the future. We don't know how the world is going to change. It would be impossible for you to imagine the world that the Industrial Revolution produced, and equally impossible for you to imagine how you would react if you time-travelled forward and settled down in a post-industrial world. And anthropologists are actually useful people to read on this, because a lot of what you do as an anthropologist is you clear off and go and live in a society that is often fundamentally different from um, the one that you live in. And so I was doing archaeological fieldwork, spent a lot of time in the South Mediterranean, in Greece and Sicily, where the, the value systems there are much more more like a traditional farming value system. Not, not like a sort of medieval farming system, because of course Sicily is highly fossil fuel driven. They have electricity, they have cars, all these things. And yet, you know, as we all know, the farming parts of all countries tend to be more conservative, more traditional. And these were people who were rapidly sexist, were to my mind offensively racist, had all kinds of just horrible attitudes about all kinds of things. Yet they were great people. They were wonderful people. I loved spending time with them. And I guess I have a sufficiently low opinion of my own moral backbone that I think that if I were dropped back in the Middle Ages, my personal values would be more or less what we see from actual medieval people. If they were brought here, they would probably have the sort of Western post-everything weird values that I have. And I think that, that is, that's what we are. We are very malleable animals. We can transform ourselves because we are good at recognising the costs and benefits of the the context that we're in, which I know sounds very cynical, but it's where... Unromantic. Yeah. <laughs> where evolutionary thinking leads to. It doesn't mean that you don't have to like it. I like my values. I enjoy them. I would hate to be a different person. And yet, I, as I see it, it's a matter of, do I have a broad enough perspective on the world to understand that what I perceive as my own excellence is not entirely my own doing? It's because of the context I find myself in. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a school of thought within effective altruism in a sense, or it's, it's extremely similar. There are folks who kind of think that what we should do is just try to empower future generations in a general sense, like give them the ability to control their environment in a larger way, to be healthier, to be smarter, to be wiser, to be more informed, and I guess to have the ability to then actualize those values with uh, with, with technology that can change the world. And then we should let them decide what is the what is the good life for them or the, or the world that they want to create, because they're just going to be in a much better position to do that than we are. And, and trying to force their hand or, or trying to bind their hand in the, in the present is a pretty bad move. It sounds like it's basically what you think as well. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a number of big challenges before us. One is that we don't know whether broadly democratic regimes are going to turn out to be the ones best suited to channel the new kinds of energies, the new kinds of technology the 21st century is bringing us. We don't know whether we are. Of course, plenty of people in China think that broadly authoritarian regimes are going to be the ones that capitalize most effectively on green energy, on artificial intelligence, on all kinds of things that are going on. We just don't know at the moment. Again, any more than people knew 300 years ago that moving in the democratic direction was going to be the most effective way to behave in the industrialized age. So that's one of the big questions for us. You know, we might not like the kind of things we hear Xi Jinping saying, but if they turn out to be so successful that every country in the world starts trying to ally itself with China, the way so many did with Britain in the 19th century, should we be totally surprised if people in these countries behave also like people did in the 19th century, in starting to emulate things that China does, just like they emulated things that, like Britain does. There's a reason why association football is played all over the planet. It's because people thought Britain had a lot of soft power. Is that what's going to happen? So that's one big unknown. The other one is in the sort of technological side of this. You know, we already live in a world where Amazon knows better than I do what books I want to read. Expedia knows where I want to go for vacation. What if we reach a point where it starts to look like our algorithms are better placed than our politicians to judge what is going to be the right decisions for the future. And, you know, there are certainly days where I already think our algorithms would be a lot better than our venal, <laughs> corrupt, incompetent, self-serving politicians. And I say that with the greatest respect. Um, but what if we get in a world like that? Is empowering as many people as possible to make their own decisions, is that a really good idea when you know they are going to make substandard decisions? You know they're going to do really stupid stuff. Would it not be better just to ask Google to take over our lives? Yeah, we actually have a podcast where someone lays out that kind of future and how that could happen somewhat gradually and somewhat innocently. Um, you basically just get this gradual handover to machine intelligence, because we conclude pragmatically that it's regularly making better decisions. And initially, of course, you'd have lots of human oversight. But then you realize, oh, the humans are actually mostly just making it worse when they intervene, the decisions are no better. And so largely, the control of society is, is handed over to, to, to a different kind of being. And I mean, that could go well, it could go badly. It's a yeah, it's very interesting that it's a very ambiguous future. That's a, oh God, I can't remember the number of the episode, but it's Paul Cristiano on how we'll progressively hand over the future to, uh, to machine learning algorithms, some title like that. Returning to war, what is it good for? Yeah, as you explained earlier, you think some wars led to the formation of empires and strong states that then suppress violence internally and often, and often improved quality of life, sometimes quite dramatically for the people living inside them. In the modern world, though, with kind of military technology being what it is and including nuclear weapons, is there much room for productive wars to occur or is that era now kind of over? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so when I was looking over the long run history of war, it seemed to me that different parts of the world would go through these cycles, where in one cycle, you would get a lot of what I took to calling productive war, in the sense that it was producing bigger, stronger, more organized governments that then drove down the rates of violent death locally, which you know, always came at a price. These governments didn't always do what their subjects wanted them to do. But you would get these cycles, like, say, 
classic one again, rise of the Roman Empire. And then you would get cycles of what I call counterproductive war, where the general thrust of the violence and the conflict resolution was toward breaking up these bigger, more organised and generally more peaceful entities. And so again, decline of the Roman Empire, classic example of this. And you see this over and over again all around the world. And thinking about these processes, it occurred to me one of the reasons it can be difficult to kind of get your head around these processes is that this is a long-term, large-scale kind of operation. So in a cycle of productive war, you will get plenty of wars that don't conform to that generalization. And uh, I took to thinking about what I call Truman's Law. There is this story that Harry Truman, when he's president of the US, one day he gets asked by this journalist, tell me, President Truman... What is your definition of the truly great president? And Truman thinks about this for a moment. He says, truly great president, young man, is one who is right 51% of the time. (laughs) <laughs> and which I think is actually quite a wise uh, insight. But that is how these patterns work. Yeah. It's not 100% like every war leads to a, a more a stronger leviathan, more organised, uh, driving down rates of violent death. Heck of a lot of them lead to exactly the opposite. But in periods of generally productive war, it's a slightly higher percentage do lead toward Rome. Periods of counterproductive war, generally higher percentage lead away from Rome. So any individual war, you can never judge it on that particular struggle. Like I say, the first World War. I mean, by any reasonable standards, a highly counterproductive war in all kinds, any almost any way you imagine it, except when you step back from the details and look at the multi-century perspective. When the First World War stops existing as a First World War, becomes a smaller part in what some people call the War of the World, a 75-year-long period, 1914 to 1989, where basically what happens is one global system dominated by the British Isles collapses, a new global system dominated by the United States um, takes over from it. In a sense, the war has actually been between Britain and the US. It's just that the violence was directed out at other people, and primarily at Germany, which becomes kind of the proximate cause behind these wars. And so the perspective you take says a lot about how how you judge these struggles. And so like you know, the struggles going on in our own age, we live now, as you say, because of the nuclear weapons, I think you're absolutely right about this, we live in an age where the potential price of engaging in major war has gone through the roof. It's become existential. If you get into some conflict with the United States, say, uh, just obviously speculation, but say you are Iran, you are the uh, the ruler of Iran, and you fire and you get a nuclear weapon and you fire it at Tel Aviv and you annihilate the state of Israel. Um, many ways the politics might go, but it's you know, perfectly possible that the American response to this is going to be a massive nuclear attack on Iran, wiping Iran effectively off the, the face of the planet. That should be a huge deterrent to uh, an Iranian leader doing that. And as far as I know, the only leader of a nuclear armed power who's ever said he is not deterred by that was Chairman Mao, who had his... Mao had his own things going on. Even Stalin was scared about stuff like this. So nuclear weapons have really dramatically driven up the threshold. But what they do is, like any other new weapon system in the history of the world, they can sometimes seem like they've made all other ways of doing things irrelevant... But they haven't. What they've done instead is you say, okay, that is off the table. All out thermonuclear exchange with the Americans, that's off the table. So what we've got to do now is figure out other ways to win our arguments with the Americans. So the Soviets figured this out pretty quickly in the Cold War. We have got to limit conflict 
So it's below a threshold where the Americans could even conceivably think that a nuclear exchange is a valid response to this. And, you know, this comes up really early on in Indochina, where the French are asking Eisenhower to nuke uh, the Vietnamese. And he looks at this and says, you have got to be out of your minds. And the Soviets and the Americans sort of quietly work out, try to figure out where is that threshold. Sometimes they get it wrong. Cuba, they came really close to getting it wrong there. Almost get it wrong again in 1983. But they work it out among themselves. Other actors say, okay, going to war with the US like Saddam Hussein does, really bad idea. But you can do non-actual war things like Al-Qaeda tries to do till they blow up the, uh, the Twin Towers. There's all these other options out there. That, I think, is what the world has been engaged in over since, since the fall of the Iron Curtain. So thinking, how do we get what we want when the Americans don't want us to have that? Without this sliding down some crazy slope, we don't want to go. And generally, you know, no one has gone anywhere near the edge of that slope. Now there's a growing perception that the, uh, the United States Global Cup is losing its grip. And you know, a, a lot of my books, I make predictions of various kinds in the books. And sometimes I really hope that I'm wrong in the predictions. But this was one I made very much in my book, War, What Is It Good For?, was that the American Global Cup was losing its grip and was, most importantly, being perceived to lose its grip. And as the Globo Cup does that, rival actors look at this situation and say, OK, every time we roll the dice, when we go head to head with the Americans, every time we roll the dice, there's a slim possibility that it might lead to catastrophe for us. If we roll 27 sixes or 27 dice, it's the end of the world. But the balance is shifting now. Now we only need to roll 24 sixes. I mean, the balance is shifting. So as we feel the Americans are getting less able and less willing to assert themselves, the, the global system is getting run less aggressively. And again, you know, it's difficult for any of us to see into the heads of political leaders. But one of the schools of thought about the Russians' behaviour toward Ukraine going back into the early 2010s has been this mounting sense in the Kremlin that the Americans are less able to police their beat anymore. And so this idea, yes, nuclear weapons have made great power war virtually unthinkable, but everything we do changes the environment. It's becoming more thinkable than it was. Yeah, so some folks have argued, and I'll stick up a link to at least one or two blog posts kind of uh, offering up this data. Some folks have argued that if you properly include all of the atrocities of the 20th century that were caused by states themselves, that is kind of atrocities, not, not that governments committed against other countries, but the governments committed against their, against their own populations, then the 20th century doesn't look especially nonviolent. It's maybe like somewhat lower, but like not as, not as much lower as if you just looked at, at deaths in, in war directly. And I guess you could imagine that your theory of wars forming strong states they reduce violence, or at least like they reduce interpersonal violence internally, that that could be exactly right. But at the same time, it's a kind of a poison, poison chalice because you now have states that are so powerful and so impregnable that they can absolutely you know, commit horrendous atrocities, kill tens of millions of, of their own population and, and get away with it and potentially even benefit in some political sense if you're a, if you're a dictator that's trying to, to maintain control. Yeah, what, what do you think of this idea that uh, central government, it might be good in certain ways, but bad in others, and then perhaps a bit ambiguous on, on balance? Yeah, I guess I, I largely agree with both of those points. The first one about, you know, there's all these different things you can include in your calculations. I think that's um, absolutely right. Um, it's all about definitions. I mean, as it is in any historical question. And I think there is a pattern that the bigger the questions you ask, the more decisive the definitions become. Like, so say we're looking at this thing, though, at the decline of violent death over time. 
a purist would say that the way you've got to do this is just to look at the strictly physical violence. Is the guy hitting the other guy in the head or not? Did the bomb go off or not? That's what you're going to be looking at here. And the advantage to narrowing it down that much, this is, I think, tends to be the way with all scientific questions. The more you narrow it down, the more precise your tool gets. And then it becomes much easier to use the skeletal evidence to trace this over time, because that is now what you're looking at. Using skeletal evidence, you can't observe all these collateral damage, I guess some people would call it. I felt when I was doing my book that was overly narrow, even though methodologically it's got this appeal, just in terms of what I wanted to know, but that was too narrow. I think if you're going to look at the long-term history of violence, you've also at least got to look at the sort of direct collateral damage, like famine. Famine and disease tend to be, I think, right of World War One. I, I read this, World War One is the last major war where famine and disease were not the major killers. And um, World War One, it actually, disease was the major killer if you include the flu pandemic um, after it, uh, carrying on after the formal peace treaty. So these are massive killers. And so I think any attempt to measure the impact of war that doesn't look at famine and disease is just ridiculous. You're living in a fantasy world. But the problem is then you dramatically increase your methodological problems because you've got to extrapolate these things. So there's always a trade-off. Other things, though, like, say, I mean, the examples you're talking about, I think was of something like, say, the famine in Ukraine that Stalin more or less deliberately brought about in the 1930s, or then the famines uh, and disease that Chairman Mao caused with the Great Leap Forward at the beginning of the 1960s, arguably the biggest man-made disaster in the history of the world. Should those be included in your definition of the violent deaths caused by war and the formation of governments. I think there's room to argue that either way. And of course, there's also disagreement over what the numbers are. I would say if you did include those, we've still got a pretty substantial step down the 20th century over the 19th. But yes, absolutely not as strong as if you exclude them. I, my feeling is that those are things that ought to be considered under a second heading, the heading, in fact, which is the other part of what you were saying, not as part of the mechanism, the governmental mechanism, but as part of the consequences of, of having it. Because this is sort of, uh, it struck me very early on when I was writing that book about war, what is it good for, that reducing violent death is a good thing. I am strongly in favour of reducing violent death. Almost everyone I've ever met thinks that reducing violent death is a good thing. However, I know a lot of people who will say reducing violent death is not the only good thing. I mean, going back to John Stuart Mill again, we are all free to choose among competing goods and decide what we think is the most important good. And reducing violent death in some ways may be a good thing, but it might bring costs that I am unwilling to bear. I say one of the big lessons for reducing violent death is that governments need to take the weapons away from their subjects. That is so glaringly obvious that it shocks me that anyone could fail to recognize this is a fundamental truth. If I've got a gun and I have an argument with you, it's way more likely you're going to end up dead than if I don't have a gun. I'm not necessarily going to shoot you. If I don't have the gun, I might still go get a kitchen knife and stab you. But the more deadly force you put in the hands of ordinary people, the more they're going to use this. This is not rocket science. However, there are costs to having a government that will take away your right to use force in your own defence. And we all know what these arguments are. And there are some people who we are 
perfectly sensible people will say, yeah, I'm all for my government having enough force at its disposal to deter the Russians from firing a nuclear weapon in New York City. But I don't want them to have enough force at their disposal to take away the rifle I use for hunting or the shotgun that belonged to my granddad or whatever it might be. So these are topics that reasonable, honest people can legitimately disagree on. So having a government powerful enough to create the great leap forward in early China and starve tens of millions of people to death, yeah, you know, I don't think that's a very good idea. But are we willing to take away the power of governments to run societies and get things done? Because if you take away the power to cause a great leap forward, you're going to be taking away a lot of other power as well. So I would say it's up to you what you count in your definition of war, of violent death. And different definitions are going to do more or less work depending on the specific question you're trying to answer. I'm a big one for tailor-made definitions for um, particular questions. And I do think it's not a moral offence to define terms differently from somebody else. A lot of people act like it is. It really is not. These are things that we can discuss. And reasonable people can come to the conclusion, well, if we define things your way, you're right. If we define things my way, I'm right. The advantages to defining them your way are as follows. The advantages to defining them my way are as follows. And because of what John Stuart Mill said, I am free to define them my way. And if I can persuade enough other people to define them my way, I will be voted into office and we will do it my way. And no one has yet, till we get the algorithm, come up with a better way of making the decisions than that. Yeah. This is just an aside, but uh, so apparently Cuba had a massive fuel shortage in the in the nineties after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and they had to come up with all of these alternatives to driving cars because it was just so limited, uh, such limited fuel available for for mechanized transport. And people's actually life expectancy went up because they were getting so much exercise <laughs> from no longer driving around in cars. And similarly, in Britain in World War Two, there was like obviously there was serious food rationing, of course, and people's health got better because of the massively improved quality of access to, nu- to nutrition, which is like these are just extraordinary facts to me but, but i'm not sure what the conclusion is of that but yeah well, i think I mean, those are great examples of the reasons why social engineering is a little bit scary um we almost never agree on where we want the world to go we almost never understand the mechanisms at our disposal for getting there and um i think I mean, one of the things that thinking about history in the evolutionary kind of way pushed me toward was this, this fundamental understanding that nobody is in charge and often evolutionists will say one of the evolutionists before the flag, one of the people who thought like an evolutionist before Darwin had really come up with any of the principles was Adam Smith, the moral philosopher who also wrote The Wealth of Nations. And Smith's, Smith's great insight was, you know, you want to get your dinner. Well, don't look to the benevolence of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers to deliver your dinner. Look to their self-interest. Free up society so everyone is able to do their own thing, pursue their own interests as much as they possibly can. The end result is you get your dinner. Start laying down rules about who can trade with whom and who is allowed to own a field of wheat. You're going to make everybody poorer. And that, I I think, obviously there's a million exceptions to the Smithian rule. But that, I think that sort of is the way to look at history. The unintended consequences tend to massively outweigh the intentional ones. We don't know where we're going. And yet, on balance, looking back across 
hundreds of thousands of years of history. People nowadays, the average life expectancy in the world is way up into the 80s. Even in the poorest countries in the world, your life expectancy is way beyond anything your grandparents could have thought about. People nowadays are massively freer than they were a couple of centuries ago. Over most of the world, people's material goods and consumption massively higher than it was at any time in the past. Any time up to the last few hundred years, out of every two babies born, one is going to be dead before it's five. I mean, I don't know if you've got kids or not. If you have, which one do you want to have dead? This is what all the terrible things we've done have given us. We know so much more about the universe than we ever did before. Overwhelming population of the world today is literate. Up till a few thousand years ago, nobody on the planet was literate. This, I think, is the optimistic reading to take away from history. We don't know what we're doing. We're blundering. We're selfish. We're often cruel and callous. And yet, despite of all of it, Things have turned out better than anybody would have dreamed they would. A common thread that has to run through a lot of your work is this general question of whether history is contingent and can be swung by the choices of individual people or whether in the grand scheme of things, individuals just all net out and the broad trends continue somewhat inexorably due to the underlying forces, geographical or otherwise, that that humans would, would find it impractical to coordinate to a level that would allow them to stop them. If the former is true and history is highly contingent, then placing, you know, the right people in positions of power could be a great way to make the future of humanity go better. If the latter is true, then maybe that's kind of the wrong way to go about things and we need to be more humble about what, what we can achieve and how we might be able to do it. What, what are your views on, on historical contingency? Yeah, I think like a lot of things, it's not an either or question. I mean, people often cast it this way. It's you know, the struggle of the, the VIFs and the VIPs, I like to think of it, the vast impersonal forces and the very important persons. <laughs> the struggle between these two. And it's sort of, it is a struggle between these two, but it's not like either wins. And so I think that thinking you're going to change the world can only ever be true in a rather limited sense. You're going to change the world. You can change the world within the parameters of what physical reality is going to allow to happen. And thinking that we are the, the slaves of circumstance and the slaves of physical forces, that again, I think that's just a very blinkered way to think about the world. And all of the work that I've been doing has been looking at how you know, geography determines how societies develop, but how the societies develop determine what the geography means. And no one has ever got the answers. Nobody's ever telling anybody what's going on. So people have to decide for themselves what is going on out there in the world. And you make decisions about what you're going to do. And then some are are basically more in touch with reality than others are. And I think the, the secret is to get in, put into control. If you're living in a world where having people in control is something that is in contact with reality, because often, I mean, say in the forager world, Putting a big chief over you is actually a terribly bad idea. This is highly unlikely to lead to a good outcome. But if you're in a world where institutions exist that can make leadership into a a productive kind of thing, getting the right people into those jobs is very, very important. And the right people are the ones whose instincts or reason lead them to pursue policies that are actually going to work in the real world. And so I think 
classic case of this is, in fact, with uh, the the book I've just been writing, it's going to be out in the spring called Geography is Destiny. It's basically it's about how the meanings of geography change for the British Isles over time and um, catapult Britain from being kind of the poor cousin of Europe, this you know, group of islands off the northwest coast of Europe where all the big innovations come last and arrive in the weakest form, catapult it from that to, in the 18th and 19th centuries, being the absolute centre of the world. And because of technological changes and organisational changes, the meanings of geography shift so that Britain's position sticking out in the Atlantic Ocean suddenly becomes a huge advantage. But not everybody sees that. And in fact, most people don't see that. And this is beginning to become true. It's beginning to become true by about 1550 or so. Um, But certainly up till 1700, there's a major body of thought within the British Isles that we need to carry on what we're doing, doing what we've always been doing. That we've, um, you know, for a long time now, we've been allied with the other Protestant powers on Europe against the Catholic French. And the Protestant Catholic thing, that's the most important thing. That is what we need to stand by. And what the British Isles needs to try to do is maintain itself as a great power on the continent, influencing the decisions of other continental great powers. And so you you start getting people coming along in the 16th century, but it only really takes hold around 1700. It's just saying, you know, you guys, you are misunderstanding the meaning of geography here. What you need to do is recognise that Britain's future lies on the oceans, in the Americas, in India. That's what we need to think about. Europe is an irrelevance. Um, Europe matters, though, because it's possible for a European power like France to get so powerful, it can challenge us. It can challenge us on the seas, it can even directly invade the British Isles. So that must never be allowed to happen. But that is the only reason we care about Europe. So our job is basically to be pains in the neck for the Europeans and to disrupt everything they try to do. Anytime a European power looks like it's really getting its game together and organising things and becoming influential, get in there and spoil things. That's Britain's policy. This is one of the reasons why Britain was so unpopular on the continent. Perfidious Albion, they call the British. Um, The British, they say, form alliances, always make an alliance with the second strongest power in Europe to drag down the strongest one. And if you start succeeding and the strongest one is being dragged down abandon your ally and join the strongest one because he's now second strongest. So now you want to drag down the one who used to be your ally. Just mess everything up for everybody. And as long as you do that, then you you are free to encompass the trade of the world, which is the expression they like to use, and become the greatest power. And of course, you don't have to push things all that far to think that the thinking going through the minds of many of the people who wanted to leave the European Union was basically along these very 18th century lines. Europe has become collectively a great power that is constraining our freedom of manoeuvre. It's becoming a threat to us internally as well as externally. Well, let's mess it up. And if us leaving, or even us failing to leave, sufficiently destabilises the European Union, that it ceases to function, well, that is not the worst outcome in the world. Uh, And so I think there's this long strategic line of thought behind what the Brexiteers were trying to do. But I think this is where leadership clearly does have a role. If you cast the question in a really hard line way, has any individual ever decisively changed the world? I mean, I say, first of all, you need to define what your question is, to change it in what way. When I was writing my Why the West Rules book, I, I framed the question as being, has any individual had the power to completely change 
the distribution of development between one end of the world and the other. And I'd say the first person who ever had that power was John F. Kennedy in 1962, when he could have caused a nuclear war, which could have fundamentally changed that balance. Now, quite a lot of people have that power. So this is one of the reasons why we're living in a scary world. So, so you're saying perhaps like in, in the past, it was rarer for people to have the ability to change like i guess they could change who was on top and kind of what area for a while but geography would tend to like take control again or like the the underlying forces would tend to gradually wipe out what they'd done and i suppose today as well you know individual leaders can change you know which countries are most influential within europe or within within asia at any given point in time but but over longer time scales there's going to be other factors that are that are more key and that person's actions might get gradually erased. But I suppose now, at least in terms of the risk of war, because, because the effects of a major war could be so enormous, they, they could potentially be permanent. Or we, or we could, you know, still be looking back hundreds of years, thousands of years in, in the future saying, wow, that, that was a decisive event that really changed the course of how things went permanently. Yeah, I, I, think, I guess I'm reasonably optimistic about the likelihood of major war, at least within the foreseeable future. The costs are so high. Statesmen generally have a sense of where the, the edge of things is. I think there's a pretty good chance we're not likely to blunder into a major nuclear war in the near future. But because we're living in such changeable times, I mean, this is the great challenge, that changeable times where people are not entirely sure what the Americans are able or willing to do, or what kind of alliance they can bring along with them. It makes it much more difficult to be sure about this. And I think, while again, I will be horribly surprised if the Ukraine war leads to a larger nuclear conflict. It makes it much more likely, much more possible than it was before this was happening. I was, I'd formed the impression, like a lot of um, strategy people, that Vladimir Putin had actually played his cards extremely well over the 2010s, in judging where the limits were and pushing and consistently getting the better of the Western alliance. And now the Ukraine invasion looks like, as we're speaking, looks like it was a disastrous miscalculation on his part. But I'm still reasonably optimistic that there's not going to be miscalculations so dramatic that they actually lead us to nuclear conflict. And I do think, yeah, on the whole, leaders know what sort of things they they can do that could potentially lead to disastrous outcomes. And what they what they tend to do is to to move much more gently, much more carefully. So something that we haven't actually got gone into in that much detail is that you think one of the main reasons that Europe took off around 1800 was its massive use of fossil fuels, was a sudden engagement with fossil fuels, which allowed it to extract a lot more energy and start doing all kinds of things that allowed it to dominate the rest of the world. It seems like that is the kind of event where a group of people could have prompted a country to like to start using fossil fuels earlier than it did. Like, couldn't you have had an intellectual circle in China who were like, you know, this coal thing, <laughs> that is going to be the future. And we should really get on coal and start using and then, and then you know, maybe not a single person, but a bunch of scientists and engineers who then found applications for coal. And could they have plausibly have like changed where where the industrial revolution occurred first? Of course, they can't do that to an unlimited degree because it has to be in a place where there is coal available, ideally, to, to mine without that much difficulty. Uh, and, you know, the, the other industrial precursors that you need to make use of it. But in as much as there's like multiple places where it's plausible that that could happen, then small groups could change the course of history. 
Yes. I guess I would say yes and no to this. And China and coal is one of the most popular examples. People will sometimes say, well, you know, the British have got all the coal, so that's why the Industrial Revolution happened there, which is just completely not true. There are enormous deposits of coal in China, <laughs> many of them very, very easily accessible. And there was one point in the 11th century where the city of Kaifeng has grown in northern China, grown to a million people. They've deforested the area around the city to feed all, you know, use burning woods um, for heating and cooking. And they start digging up coal and burning that. And people have known for a very, very long time that this could be done. And in Roman Britain, in fact, the Romans dug up quite a lot of coal in Britain, used it for cooking and heating. And the Chinese are doing this in the 11th century. And they start figuring out ways to use it for other industrial techniques as well. And some historians think that the Chinese were kind of coming close to having an industrial revolution of at least some kind about 700 years before the British did. And you look at like um, iron production in China in the 11th, 12th century, it's higher than the whole of Europe on the eve of the industrial revolution there. So, so what happens here? Is this a case of a bunch of people who could have had an industrial revolution, then just for some reason it doesn't quite come together. And it's human error, if you want to think of that as an error, a human judgment anyway, led to that outcome. Or is there something else going on? And I think in this case, there's pretty clearly something else going on, which is that the incentives out there to switch over to using a lot of coal just weren't present in 11th century China, whereas they were in 18th century England. Is to, to use coal effectively as an industrial power, as a fossil fuel driving your machinery, all the other things that people start doing with coal. You've got to do a lot of stuff. A lot of tinkering has to happen. You know, you don't just decide, oh, I'm going to do this. Then immediately you've got a working steam engine. In England, it took the you know, best part of a couple of centuries to produce really workable fossil fuel engines. So you have to have reasons to do this. And in China and for much of European history, too, the upfront investments you've got to make to do the R&D that's going to lead you to good coal burning machines, these are enormous and they're not very attractive because the payoff, it's not obvious what the payoff is going to be. I say in, uh, in ancient times, Greek engineers in Alexandria figured out steam powered doors. They had steam powered doors where if you tread on a little metal pad, that sends a message down a spring that sends the pistons and the pistons are powered by steam. They open the doors magically for you. And everybody thought this was fantastic, but nobody saw any obvious industrial application of this. And if they had, I think the Greeks wouldn't have had to have been geniuses to figure out they could use coal as well as wood to power these machines. I mean, well on the way to an industrial revolution. But it just wasn't obvious why you would do that. Labour was cheap. You can always use the whip to drive the cost of labour down cheaper still. You don't need to spend a lot of money paying weirdo engineers and tinkerers to come up with these fancy machines when there's no obvious reason why they're going to pay off. Plus, the weirdo engineers are often rather subversive, unlikely characters, ones who are very difficult to get them to do what you tell them, which is why so many governments throughout history have been rather repressive with technological innovation. They, they kind of don't like the look of it. So the issue was to do with the, the cost of labour in, in Britain at the time or, 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 the, or the difficulty getting people to do work for low cost? Well, I think what, what's happening in Britain in the 18th century is um, all these questions lead on to all these other questions that you have to start going into. But um, the cost <laughs> of labour in Europe explodes in the 14th century. It's one of these many unpleasant, unintended consequences. The Black Death kills nearly half the people in Europe. So now if you're a landowner, you've got big fields you want to get worked 
it's twice as difficult to get workers for you as it used to be. And you're going to use violence. And there's a series of attempts to force workers to come and provide their labour cheaply. Doesn't turn out all that well. Cost of labour explodes. 15th century in Western Europe is the golden age to be a, a poor farm labourer. And people go from living off basically bread and bits of cheese uh, to living on mutton and beer and beef. and Just the, the standards of living explode for the poor. But then as the population recovers across the 16th, 17th centuries, this the, the Malthusian problem. And the population starts to press on this. It's easier and easier to get labour. Increasingly, land is what's short, not labour. So the cost of land goes up, uh, which is to the benefit of the landowners. The cost of labour goes down, which is to the cost of the poor. So you start getting labour getting cheaper and cheaper again, except for two places, which are England and the Dutch Republic, the Netherlands, which are super plugged into the new North Atlantic economy, which for them changes everything. They're now plugged into this totally different, bigger economic system. And in those countries, the poor can always find employment in factories. And it may not be the employment you want. Um, it may not pay very well. It may be dangerous, all kinds of horrible things about it, in fact. But you can get food. And wages in England and Holland remain more or less stable while they're going down and down and down in other parts of Europe. And one of the difficulties manufacturers in England start to have in the 18th century is that wages are really high in England relative to other places. It's beginning to price low-cost English manufacturers out of all these markets the English are now able to open because of their access to the Atlantic. So the incentives for English manufacturers to find some ways to augment expensive labour go through the roof. Um, other places, you're trying to drive the cost of labour down lower and lower. It's subtly different in England. If we can augment this labour, that will make everything work again. And so all over China, all over Europe, people are playing around with steam engines. They understand perfectly well that you've got a great labour enhancer here. If you can heat water to create steam that will drive pistons, that can power textile mills, that can power steel rolling, all this stuff. There's a lot of money to be made here, but there's more money to be made in England or the Netherlands and absolutely anywhere else. And we should not be surprised in the least that these are the two countries that lead the charge toward the Industrial Revolution. And it took them a long time. And Chinese engineers had figured out some similar things back in the 11th and 12th centuries. But then they just sort of gradually moved away from that. I mean, partly for military reasons. They had a series of disastrous defeats. The big cities broke up. But also partly because initially when it starts happening, the kind of machines you can make with steam power, they're not going to make you super rich. They're not that useful. Again, it's this problem of you can't see the future. Like the guys who initially make steam engines in England do them for one purpose and one purpose only which is to set them up at coal mines to pump water out of the shafts. Because as the English are using more and more coal, they're digging deeper and deeper shafts, they get flooded more easily by groundwater. They set up teams of horses to haul buckets of water out, but this is staggeringly expensive. There isn't enough land in England to generate all the forage you would need to feed all the horses you want. So a steam engine... It's like a thousand horses, which is why we measure in horsepower. This was their decision because of this reason. It's a thousand horses and they're eating coal. Isn't that fantastic? And they, initially, they don't bother very much about the efficiency of the steam engine because you've got unlimited coal because you're at a coal mine. So who cares? But then guys start saying, oh, man, if I had one of them newfangled steam engines, I could set it up at my cotton mill. It could power this huge weaving machine. I could get rid of a lot 
lot of workers or I can't find workers. So this would allow the few I've got to run all of these spindles at the same time. This is fantastic. But those engineers can't figure out a machine that doesn't burn so much coal that it's no, not efficient to set one up at my mill. So the big challenge for guys like James Watt and the other engineers how do you lower the coal consumption of your coal-fired engine to the point that people can start to use it in other industrial applications? And the solution was actually glaringly obvious, but just nobody could make it work. And so what gets together with James Bolton, this manufacturer in Birmingham, they make it more or less work. Then all these other guys come along and add little bits and add little bits and add little bits. And you know, basically that's why Britain ruled an empire on which the sun never set, because of coal and tinkerers yeah i guess it seems like it's the case that the more specific thing you look at the more it's contingent on the actions of of individuals and then the more you zoom out to the big picture the more it's like these geographic factors or the more abstract the thing the more it's you know a matter of geography and technology and and interacting and, and so on can you think of any examples that are like maybe nicely on the boundary between things that are like quite specific and quite abstract and, and high level that kind of show where the boundary is between contingent and inevitable? Well, I guess the way I tend to think about it is kind of in terms of different frames of analysis and different questions that you ask. Like, so say if my question is, well, like I asked in the book, uh, Why the West Rules for Now, why did a small group of countries clustered around the North Atlantic Ocean come to dominate the whole planet in the last 200 years? In a way, the world had never seen anything like that before. I think if your answer, that, that's a very high level question. And if, you, if you're asking that question, the answer is overwhelmingly geography. A one word answer to the question. Um, but of course, um, then it has to be qualified by the interaction between geography and individuals, geography driving how the societies develop, that deciding what the geography means. If you take the same question and you narrow it down and you say, well, why was it that a small group of countries around the shores of the North Atlantic come to dominate the world precisely starting in the years between about 1780 and 1820? Now, then we would have a much more complicated kind of question to answer. If James Watts, the great engineer, and Matthew Bolton, his industrial backer, if neither of them had been born, it wouldn't have happened in quite the same way. It would have been different. I think the Europeans would still have come to dominate the planet, but it would have certainly have taken longer. And the centre of innovation might have been in the Netherlands or in northern France around Lille, rather than in the English Midlands where I grew up. Or then again, maybe it would have all happened faster. And as one of the things Watt did was he, through his industrial, his financial backers, he got Bolton to go and bother all these people in Parliament. And his backers got together and agreed. Parliament granted James Watt a special patent, which said nobody else in the whole of the British Isles was allowed to experiment with steam engines for the next, I think it was like 20 years or something, insane a length of time. The worst possible thing you could have, just stifle competition and invention. But he got this patent. And so some historians will say, well, you know, the best thing that could ever have happened for the British industrial was if James Watt had been hit by a horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> a bus, <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, a horse-drawn carriage. Sorry, of course. <laughs> Other guys, they, they do figure out tweaks. They figure out ways around Watt's patent. But they've got to be really, really ingenious. Like Watt had this obsession about never having high-pressure steam engines. He was convinced they were all going to blow up and kill everybody. And so he wouldn't experiment with them. So we wouldn't have had railway transport if Watt had been in charge of the show. Because it's this Cornish guy thinks out a way to evade some of the regulations to produce high-pressure steam engines light enough to mount on wheels and power along rails. So I think a lot of this question 
Is it the individual? Is it the vast impersonal forces? Where is the cusp between the two? I think a lot of it depends on the scale of the question you're answering. Yes, the smaller you make your question, the more the causal power shifts over to the accidental, to the individual. You know, Adolf Hitler gets hit by a bus in 1935. Do we get a second world war? We don't get the Second World War we had. I think there's no doubt about that. But a lot of the forces that made the Second World War possible are still there. The problems Germany has got are still there. And maybe, I think it's very possible you would have got a German leader. I can't think who it would have been, but you might have got a German leader who said, well, OK, yeah, Hitler maybe had the right idea about reviving Germany, but war is not the answer. There are other ways we can do this. Maybe sort of precursor of Angela Merkel sees what's happening in the future and says, oh, well, this is the way we just bide our time. We have such industrial potential. We don't have to do any of these insane things. Or maybe you get somebody in the middle who'll say, well, a limit war. Maybe that will do it. Or maybe a war that is not about exterminating the Jews. Maybe that will do it. And all these different sorts of possibilities. I think refining your question is always the key thing. What exactly do you want to know? Because that's going to determine the role of individuals, the role of accidents, and the range of possible what-if outcomes. Yeah, I've been going through a biography of, of Hitler recently, and we were just at, at this kind of stage of taking over. It's it does seem like, yeah, without Hitler, things could have gone extremely differently. Uh, th- there were a lot of reactionary, violent parties in Germany at the time, but it wasn't at all obvious that one of them necessarily had to rise to power. And even like even Hitler's thing it, by 1931, 1932, completely not obvious that, that he would end up taking control. And he seemed to get incredibly lucky <laughs> in some ways. So yeah, I mean, that, that, I think people kind of cite that as an example where like it seems like one person really did massively change history. But I suppose th- there is still the possibility that the structural factors that led to, to Hitler's rise could have led to the rise of some other pretty pretty unpleasant person as well. Yeah, I think Hitler is an extreme case. And if you're looking for one man changes everything um, stories, then Hitler is going to be a good place to start, definitely. I think yeah, with the, the sort of the pushback, the sort of alternative theory of history, and people actually will often call it the Engels theory of history, that Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx's sidekick, he, he wrote this book saying if there had not been a Napoleon, then historical necessity would have created a Napoleon, which I think is a slightly ridiculous and sort of theory. But I think you take Hitler off the scene. And again, with the counterfactuals, you've got to be very precise. What, when and how do we do that? Is he never born? Because that's a very different take him off the scene than if you take him off the scene, say, immediately before they appoint him as chancellor, he gets assassinated. So you've got to be precise about what you're doing there. So, but say Hitler's gone somehow or other. Um, the other, the forces that made a Hitler possible are still very much there. And you look at the other countries in Europe, they are already in the early 30s. A lot of them are moving toward rather brutal right-wing dictators. And of course, most of those countries, again, terrible to say this, but most of them don't matter at the level we're pitching this question of, do we get something like World War II? You know, Romania gets, as it does, a brutal right-wing dictator. Well, that kind of doesn't matter because they're not likely that Romania can cause World War II. Um Big players, though. Is it possible that the bit other, if you took Hitler out of the equation, would the other big players get leadership that lead us into a Second World War? And there, I think Stalin is the scary wild card. There's been a lot of arguments just recently about why Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, because some documents came up making it sound like Stalin was planning an invasion of Germany on the eve of what Hitler 
actually did when he invaded Operation Barbarossa. That's almost certainly wrong. But it does look like Stalin saw his his deal he cut with Hitler as being something to buy him time and that a violent attack on Central Europe probably was in the cards at some point. So again, you know, you, your guess, your listeners' guesses are every bit as good as mine as to what would have happened. I think it's distinctly possible there still would have been a major war in the mid-20th century because everything is still going on with Japan, whether Hitler's there or not. But I do think the Hitler case is one of the most promising ones for the people who want to shift the balance decisively uh, towards the, 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 the agency. Yeah, Stalin's another interesting one because he's kind of, as a person, just a real force of nature and incredibly conniving and incredibly clever in, in seizing power. But at the same time, with that one, I feel like there were stronger structural factors in the way that the communist revolution had happened in Russia and the way the party was organized that was pushing for like more brutal and more violent people to take over. I think it's not it's not mere happenstance that the Doves and people like Bukharin and so on did not manage to seize control of the Soviet Union. Like Lenin's ideology was pushing towards violence and and, and if you were not willing to play that game <laughs> of purging people, then uh, you were going to get purged <laughs> with pretty high probability. So it's not, it's not surprising that the most violent rose to the top. Yes, I think with the Soviet case, uh, back in the days when I was a student, there used to be this line that was quite popular that Lenin was Lenin was the nice dictator. Stalin was the bad man who perverted the course of the revolution. When I was a, a student, you never asked if somebody was a Marxist. Everybody was a Marxist. You just asked, what, what kind of Marxist are you? So there's a lot of uh, apologies for the Soviet Union. Um, it's, not, it's pretty clear that Lenin's regime was as reliant on force as Stalin's. If Lenin had lived longer, maybe not all of the stuff that Stalin did would have happened, but an awful lot of that was going to happen. The collectivization was it wasn't the only policy they were thinking about, but it's such a powerful policy that seeing them indefinitely putting off collectivization, indefinitely not having a Ukrainian famine, that I think that just pushes credibility. Yeah, yeah. At the risk of offending our, our Leninist listeners, I think I, I'll say I, I'm not a huge fan of Lenin. I think think he was a bad dude. Um, going back into into further back in history, you know, before before the Industrial Revolution, though. Who are, who are like plausible cases for individuals who have materially changed the world that we live in today, the kind of style of life that we have or the values that we might have? Are, are, are there plausible cases? Yes, I think there certainly are. Um, but again, it's all a matter of how you define the question. And so you know, the first time I really started thinking hard about this was when I was writing Why the West Rules for Now. And the central, the question in that book is about your Western social development being higher than any other part of the world. And so when I was asking for that book about individuals changing the course of history, what I meant was, are there individuals who could have changed where these development lines are on the graph? Which is setting the bar pretty high, I admit it. But and that was what led me to this conclusion that basically before 1962, before John Kennedy, no individual could, there was nothing any individual could have done which would have fundamentally changed these patterns. And the examples I looked at the one I wrote about in the book as an example was Muhammad. And now, you know, pretty much everybody would agree, yeah, Muhammad was a great man. Islam changed the world in many, many ways. And if Muhammad had not had that vision of the angel coming to him as he was sleeping, or if his wife had persuaded him that it was actually just something he imagined rather than a, a real angel, all these ifs, um, no Islam 
things really different. But then looking at it in terms of the, through the lens of social development, by the time Muhammad has his vision of the angel, late 6th century AD, CE, Western development has already started falling. At the fall of the Roman Empire, it starts falling. Eastern development is recovering from the collapse of Han Dynasty China. And so the Eastern line is going up, the Western line is coming down. Islam does have some impact on these lines. The impact Islam has is that as things are, in a sense, falling to bits in Christian Europe, Islam unites much of the old Byzantine Empire and then large other parts of the world as well. And um, the Islamic world, in a sense, uh, this I, I, I wrote this, this upset some readers very much, but in a sense, the Islamic world becomes the Western world. It's the most developed part of the Western end of Eurasia. It's where all the really important stuff is going on for several centuries. Um, well, they, well they, they, they take on and become stewards of what was Roman and, and Greek knowledge, which a, a lot of, like, information which was basically lost within within Europe proper yeah yeah, the, the, the biggest cities, the highest standards of living, the most sophisticated science and engineering, most sophisticated agriculture, all of this stuff is in the Islamic world. And so it's the Islamic world we need to be looking at for development scores. But in spite of Muhammad, Western development keeps going down. Even though Muhammad has spread Islam and Islam has pulled together stuff, they think that things would have gone even worse for the Western end of Eurasia without Islam coming and taking over. The Christian part really does collapse very dramatically. Um, but even with the Muslim takeover, it doesn't change the fundamental underlying patterns. And I think this is true of other, uh, well, great men or bungling idiots, depending on how you choose to evaluate each individual. Usually there is more than one way to look at these people. And certainly any individual Roman, like Julius Caesar or something, none of them really did anything that fundamentally changed these patterns. And I would say that's probably true everywhere. One of the examples that gets talked about very much are the, the Chinese emperors who shut down the great voyages of these treasure fleets, just at the point Europe was starting up its voyages of exploration in the 15th century. But again, it's not an individual. It's a whole series of individuals with hundreds and hundreds of super qualified civil servants sharing these decisions. It's very difficult to see how any one individual could really have made a significant difference difference to these decisions. So yeah, I think it's only when you get people who have the destructive power to at one stroke change everything. That That's when, uh, with nuclear weapons, that's when uh, individuals come to the fore. Yeah, I guess you've got some Roman emperors around the time when it seemed like everything was about to unravel, if I remember, like the fourth or fifth, or fifth century, who managed to like pull things together, win some military victory. I think Diocletian from memory and the, and, and the triumvirate and so on. But, that, but that's another case where it seems like they, you know, maybe they gave the Roman Empire another 200 good years, but there are other factors that caused it to nonetheless kind of fall to pieces later on. Perhaps it was overextended or, or, or maybe these things just have kind of a random, there's this random number generator that means that eventually an empire falls apart for whatever random reasons that they come together. And so no, no one person can, can extend its life indefinitely. Yeah, so I think... And, um, with all, all these examples, of course, the historical scholarship is always enormous, and you've got all these people disagree fundamentally. With Diocletian, uh, yeah, and then like the 280s, um, Diocletian kind of pulls things back together. And the, the most popular, I think the most popular theory at the moment is that the reason the empire comes apart so badly in the third century is not because of any real underlying structural problems, or not new ones exactly, so much as a sort of grand bargain within the elites that made it seem worthwhile to them to play ball with the empire. Um, that that unraveled for a number of different reasons. And, and once it's unraveled, the emperors can't get anybody to do what they want. And they're all, everybody's fighting each other. And once that starts, everything else starts falling to bits as well. The frontiers dissolve. And then in the late third century, they begin putting that 
grand bargain back together. And Diocletian is important. I don't think any historian would deny that. But if they'd had a different emperor, it probably if they'd had one who'd lived as long as Diocletian, this was his great contribution. That there were several previous guys in the two seventies who definitely started putting the same bargain back together, but then they get killed, which is kind of an occupational hazard at that point for emperors. He is a genius doesn't get killed. And so things get put back together. And of course, we're guessing, but I think the, one of the most popular guesses is that it would have kind of got stitched back together without Diocletian anyway. But uh, again, it's always very difficult. This is why it's so difficult to rigorously test theories about the balance between individual agency and vast impersonal forces. There's so many moving parts. There's always going to be arguments over uh, any individual case. What the counterfactual was, yeah. Yeah, exactly. What precisely is your question? Yeah, like, I mean, I I can change the world right now in the sense that you know I, I can decide to go get leave this interview and put a different pair of socks on or something, which will cause a problem for you. It'll briefly change your world, but by tomorrow, even you will have forgotten this happened. It just simply won't matter. Almost everyone, I think, everyone has free will, but very few people on Earth have free will that allows them to change things that matter for really big, large-scale questions. And, I mean, I say say I get hit by a bus right now. This is a very serious effect for my immediate family, serious effect for my colleagues who've got to do a search to replace me, annoying for my students. Um, various circles of people around me who are affected to varying degrees of seriousness by my squished by a busness, But not that many. I mean, pretty soon run out of it because there's nothing I'm ever likely to do in my remaining years that's going to change the world in respect to a lot of the big questions. Other people are much more important than me, but very few people, if you're asking questions like why the West rules for now, why rates of violent death have fallen, very few people change the equation enough to affect those questions. Yeah, I'm trying to think in my head, are there any other even like really plausible cases of folks who changed history, you know, more than 300 years ago in a really persistent way? I, I think like, yeah, the most plausible ones I'm coming up with are the ones who founded the, the most successful religions. Like, could Jesus have like, you know, changed the values that we hold today in some, like, maybe we would be operating within a different cosmology and really, you know, and having more pagan values, or you know, the kind of values that people had before Christianity came along. And I guess like likewise, Islam, likewise, Buddhism, some of these ideas have really persisted. And it seems like within the bounds of what's within a fossil fuel world or a farmer world, there's a reasonable range. And some of these religions have definitely pushed things in one direction rather than another in a way that doesn't seem to have washed out. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the really interesting things with religions, I think you're right that the, the figures we immediately jump into mind are mostly religious ones. One of the really interesting things is you think like, who, okay, so who are these great religious thinkers? Uh, well, we've had Muhammad already, the Buddha, um, Confucius, not, not exactly religious, but certainly a, a thought system, same kind of thing. I see who else we've got, uh, Muhammad, Jesus. Uh, oh, Zoro- Zoroaster. Zoro- yeah, exactly. A lot of people we can think of who, but overwhelmingly they are what historians comparative historians would nowadays call axial age thinkers and this is an idea that goes back in different forms a couple of centuries now that all of the great systems of thought that have guided billions of people given meaning to their lives for for many many centuries millennia even sometimes now all of them are invented more or less around the middle of the first millennium bc in a chain of countries from china to the east mediterranean all of them. And then they, they get propagated, carried outward by um, missionaries and converts from there. All of them roughly the same time in a single geographical area of the world. Why did that happen? And so one of the theories, you've got one kind of original great thinker, and then these principles of great thought get carried out from there. Because I mean, it is striking. You know, nobody's going to confuse Confucianism for Christianity. That'd be an extremely strange mistake to make. But a lot of the 
principles are rather similar, about you know, doing unto others fairly as you'd expect them to do unto you. And uh, historians of religion will often say that the big thing with all of these axial age systems of thought is this idea, make your own fate. Your fate is in your own hands. Save yourself, because that is open to you. And in a lot of earlier religions, based on this idea that there's kind of great chain of being from the gods in the sky down to the rulers of humans. The kings are provided by the gods, often our gods in Egypt say, the kings are divine, provided to us. Below them, there's the mortals, and the kings tell us what to do. And then below the mortals are the animals. And of course, you have different categories of mortals as well, down to the poorest slave. Great chain of being, um, where salvation is really in the hands of the king dealing with the gods. That's the most important thing in the cosmos. All of these axial age theories in different ways say your salvation is in your own hands, whether it's through prayer or good deeds or philosophical contemplation or study or piety to your ancestors, all these different things, meditation, you know, they all come up with their own take on this, but kind of a similar thing. Don't rely on the elite to save you. Salvation is in the hands of the ordinary mortal. And then, of course, they all twist it in, in various directions. And so one theory is, well, this is invented one place that's spread out across Eurasia. That doesn't seem to be the case. No one's ever found any convincing evidence for that. The other theory is that in these places, in this band of civilizations from China to the Mediterranean, first millennium BC, you've got roughly similar kinds of forces operating, pushing people's thought in roughly the same directions, and they all independently come up with vaguely comparable axial age religions. And I actually got roped in a few years ago by a psychologist and a biologist and the statistician to writing a paper for the journal Current Biology about this, this problem, uh, where they took the social development index that I uh, created for Why the West Rules for Now, and then we expanded it to look at various other civilizations as well, and uh, tried to test the theory that civilizations will create axial age religions at the point when energy level and average income reach a certain height. And I mean, ultimately, I think it's the kind of question where we don't have a knockout single punch test for this theory. But there is at least a plausible case. And there's been several things written attacking the article, but no one has come out and actually refuted this yet. And various other spin-off work has been done. So I think that this is a, a nice case in a way that even these religious guys, we don't know if we're right or not, but there's at least a case to be made that these ideas are generated by the effects of geography, pushing development up, that cause people to think in new ways, which then of course reflects back into the effects of geography. And so it, what the individual say does matter. But it's part of a larger package. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess you're kind of saying there that as people switched into farming, maybe, or they had, you know, a particular level of energy, then new values, new religious ideas became possible. It became possible for them to flourish and spread in a way that previously mm -hmm. might have been very challenging. But it also shows how wide a range they can be, that you can have Confucianism and Islam and Christianity and Zoroastrianism and Buddhism, that, they, that these are all potentially consistent like value theories that are uh, like good enough to get along with the farming world and compete in the, in the field of ideas. Yeah, from one point of view, it like shows that there's actually a, decent, a reasonable amount of, of flexibility. Yeah, and of course, we, we still kill each other in our millions over these things, but they are it's like a narcissism <laughs> of small differences. We know that uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all use basically the same holy books. I mean, this is quite small yeah. differences we're looking around. Yeah, I've, I've had a slight thing for history of religious thought recently, and I, I was very interested to find out that a lot of people think that 
Zoroastrianism is kind of the precursor to all of the Abrahamic religions, that a whole lot of ideas were introduced mm-hmm. with Zoroastrianism that then seemed to carry through to Islam, to Judaism and, and to Christianity that basically seemed like they were absent in, in other religions in that area at the time. And indeed, like absent from most of the other, like certainly from Buddhism, I think from Taoism and, and Confucianism to some degree as well. Yeah, kind of a fascinating connection. I'm, I'm not sure whether <laughs> people, people who are into those religions like that theory uh, might, might seem a bit invalidating, but... You know, I think that there is something very distinctive about the axial age um, thought systems. Although, you know, having said that, they nestle within a larger, what you may call sort of farming religions. Uh, one of the things that religious comparison uh, people like to talk about is how farming societies, these are the ones that tend to have high gods, have a great all-powerful god or group of gods, a pantheon will do just as well. And that the high gods actually care about what you're doing. Um, which sounds sort of weird, but one of the things you often find with hunter-gatherers societies is ancestors are really important and gods exist ancestors are really important though spirits of animals can be really important the gods are just not that big a part of the story they're sort of in the background yeah. there's a high god yeah but he doesn't actually do anything and then farmers come along and all of a sudden what the high god thinks is really really important and the high god cares very deeply about whether you eat meat on a friday and if you do you are wicked and you, the high god tells you who you're allowed to marry the high god has rules on everything and it's sort of inconceivable to have a, a think of a religion of the book where you say yes a high god exists and the high god is all powerful high god can do everything but he doesn't actually mind what i do and um in fact high god he said high god he cares on wednesdays but not on thursdays thursdays is fine do whatever you like it's a ridiculous basis for a religious system and yet uh, these religious systems with the all-seeing all-powerful gods and pantheons these are very much a farming world kind of thing and then the systems that have carried on really successfully into the industrial age have been these axial age ones I think that clearly it's some sort of big patterns and a lot of room to argue over them. There's some sort of big patterns going on here. Maybe we're someone to, to innovate and come up with a new fossil fuel fueled religion. That would be, that'd be an interesting, interesting effort. Um, this, is, this is super fun, but at some point I've got to take mercy on you and let you go. So if, as, as a final section, I'd like to move on to maybe your visions and, and thoughts about the future. We touched on that a little bit earlier on. I suppose from your particular perspective as someone who's thought about the very long term, how things have played out and how things have changed, are there any particular problems in the world or like ways that things could go right or wrong, you know, over the next 100 or 200 years that particularly jump out as, uh, at you as perhaps like not things that people don't fully appreciate how important they are in, in the scheme of things and how they might have ongoing effects? Yeah, the one, I think it's less true right now that people don't think about this enough than it was um, up till very, very recently. But the one thing I think people have just sort of forgotten is nuclear war. Nuclear weapons didn't go away. We had 70,000 of them in the 1980s, could almost certainly have killed all humans, probably all life. And we've now gotten rid of 90% of them, which is the most extraordinary thing in the history of the world. If there's one thing about humanity to be happy about, it's the graph of the falling numbers of nuclear weapons, the happiest graph on Earth. And this is all fantastic, but we can still make them. And this is the big thing with humans. It's not impossible to make us forget how to do things, but it is quite difficult. So nuclear war is still out there. Global warming is a huge threat and a challenge for humanity, but it's probably not going to make us extinct. It's going to mean horrible changes. I think on balance, well, some probably will turn out to be beneficial. On balance, it's going to be nightmarish. Uh, I live in the wooded area in the mountains in California, and I've seen quite a lot of the consequences of global warming out here. This is going to be nightmarish. But nuclear war will kill everything 
everybody. Nuclear war ends every story. Biological warfare, potentially as well, but nuclear war, definitely. And this is the number one thing to worry about. And I, when I ask sometimes, when I'm trying to be annoying, I'll ask friends, you know, what, what do you worry about most? I've never once had anybody say nuclear war. <laughs> uh, I think it's largely because of the change in geopolitics. So the, the likelihood of Russia, uh, which has, you know, since the 1980s has always had the largest arsenal on Earth, the likelihood of the Russians firing at us has been very, very low. Well, it's less low. And people are starting to rebuild nuclear weapons. This is the most alarming trend on the planet, is that people are starting to rebuild their nuclear weapons to target them better. Yeah, if you want something not to sleep about, nuclear weapons is the one. Yeah, I think the new START treaty is going to expire in 2024, 2025 from memory. And I mean, it's not obvious given how the relationship is between these countries right now that they're going to come up with a new treaty or renew it. And then I think the chains are off. They can they can build a lot more nuclear weapons. Yes. They can, uh, you know, in, like the arsenals have been really quite low lately, sufficiently low that humanity wouldn't go extinct, that, that we could recover. But but what is the, what is the limiting principle once uh, if, if Russia and the US get into an arms race about nuclear weapons again? And then China will, of course, feel like it has to keep up. It's uh, it's really not not something that uh, bears thinking about. Yes, of course, the British British government recently announced it's going to start building new nuclear weapons for the first time in I think, about forty years. But actually, what I perhaps worry about more than anything is proliferation. That um, more when so. you have smaller actors nuclear armed, then like the Cold War, people uh, strategists would say the Cold War was dangerous but stable because there were two players who really counted, and you knew roughly what they were going to do. And uh, one of the scary things that nuclear strategists will talk about with the current balance is. India and Pakistan, as I'm sure you know, both nuclear armed, but both have deliberately avoided taking the step toward building the H-bomb, thermonuclear weapons, when your one weapon can kill millions of people at one stroke in a city. They deliberately haven't built those. And um, the most popular theory is that they are deliberately keeping their nuclear arsenal under the total war threshold, so that if India were to invade Pakistan, Pakistan can use nuclear weapons on Indian cities, sending this really, really strong message that the the gloves are off now and we need to go to the peace table. Otherwise, the great powers are coming in with their nuclear weapons. And some cold-blooded strategists will say, well, maybe that's good. Maybe that'll stop the war. Because people who live on the real world will say, you get the nuclear great powers confronting each other. This is there's no way this is good. This is potentially the end of everything. So yeah, so much to worry about. Yeah. So that's one stream of thought on like what what matters most and, and ways that things could go really wrong. It's kind of the yeah these these disaster scenarios, great power conflict, use of biological weapons. I guess another horrific pandemic. Although I suppose to be honest, yeah, I think the the COVID thing has made me think that a natural pandemic is very unlikely to be an existential threat to humanity. We we, we have so many options for, for countering that now that you know, fingers crossed. But something that runs through through so many of your books is just realizing that people invent these new technologies kind of because they want to make some cotton cloth or something, and then this just completely upends the world. That you know, basically gunboats end up, you know, going into Japan and China and t- taking over all these places because some people wanted to remove water from from coal. And, and there's example like, and well, what is it good for? You go through like many different iterations of how people came up with the new technology. For example, you know, uh, people came up with horses as a, as a uh, they, they made bigger horses. They figured out how to ride them better. They figured out how to shoot arrows on horses. And this just leads to like catastrophic destruction across so much of the world as as all these uh, herdsmen and, and, and raiders and so on basically pull apart these empires that that had existed before. And I mean, this is like a handful of examples of cases where technology drove history in this massive, important way, completely changed who who was powerful in ways that no one no one anticipated before. And I guess this is why, you know, looking ahead, we're saying 
we've got genetic engineering, we've got, you know, massive improvements in, in, in our ability to do biology, to make viruses, to make bacteria that, that do things that we want. We've got massive changes in surveillance technology, in, in artificial intelligence. And how are these things going to play out? Who does that empower? Like, yeah, what changes is that going to lead to in the world? I don't know. And no one else knows either. Like people, people speculate and there's all kinds of good and bad scenarios. But to some degree, looking at history and how it's been driven by this interaction between technology and society and geography in ways that people never, almost, like very rarely see, at least, at least see more than like a decade ahead, it, it freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the lessons you get from looking at the long-term history is how how few people at the time ever understood quite what some of these new technologies are going to be capable of doing. And because it's just, it's very difficult to imagine what the world is going to be like at that future state. So how can you possibly imagine what the impact of the technology is going to be on that imagined world when you can't imagine it? And so, yeah, this has sort of always been there. And I think one consequence of that is it's easy and it's kind of fun to sit around speculating, making up new things that we might invent or new uses of what we've already got that might just change everything. But I think that is, in a way, a rather pointless activity because there's just no way to constrain what you're thinking. I think what's much more useful is thinking about the things we can already see emerging uh, as, as new technologies and thinking about all the different branches that this might take. Like, say, fossil fuels is one of the uh, favourite ones of these. I mean, I, I'm pretty optimistic that relatively soon the world is going to be moving massively away from fossil fuels. And it's going to take a long time to get off them completely, but massively away from them. And um, this has certain you know, obvious upsides to this, like not killing all of ourselves is one of them. Also, you know, disempowering... Um, the dictators in charge of the petrostates is an obvious huge plus. But it also has all kinds of sort of side passages on the, the chain of possibilities. And so one of them is actually reading about this in The Economist magazine this week. They were talking about this a little bit. As uh, the difficulties of selling fossil fuel increases, initially, uh, so the, the big, really wealthy economies are going to be moving away from fossil fuels fastest, leaving smaller economies behind more dependent on fossil fuels. And as big economies get out of producing fossil fuels, initially at least, more of the fossil fuels, not less, are going to be produced by the petrostates, leaving smaller, less advanced economies more dependent on, on the Russias and um, the Venezuelas and these sorts of people. And I, I wasn't totally convinced at the end whether we, how much we should worry about this, whether this is really going to change the world, but everything you do has these unintended consequences. And sometimes we can plan ahead and, and head them off. Sometimes you can't. And actually, I once heard Robert Gates, the former defence secretary in the US, give this speech about future warfare. And uh, he was saying to an audience, I think it was a West Point cadets audience, and he said to them, you know, the United States has a 100% record of predicting future wars. We have a 100% record of being wrong. And he said, because the reason for that, we're wrong 100% of the time, the reason for that is that when we see problems developing in one part of the world, we do something. We head them off. The only place we're likely to have things go badly wrong is where we haven't anticipated it. And suddenly it bursts up there and we're not ready for it. Uh, and so I think it's sort of a little bit the same with the, the futurist sort of game. It's, uh, it's easy to plan for the things that you know are going to happen, but there's just all this other stuff going on. 
Yeah, that's a yeah, it's an interesting example, one that I yeah completely hadn't thought about. I suppose with you know your concern, for example, about like how could genetic engineering of humans be applied? This is like one of the technologies that could be a real game changer, could could change the human experience, and could also you know give governments much more control over people perhaps than than they have now, or, or control over how their societies evolve. That's something that I you know I don't think is imminent in like in the next decade or two, at least not on any on any very significant scale. But I would be very happy if there was a significant research community trying its best, admittedly <laughs> against difficult odds, to figure out like what are the different ways that this could be used, what implications would that have, how would that change the power balance, and so on. And of course, at this point, they're almost certainly going to be wrong if this is a technology that isn't going to be applied on a large scale for 30, 40, 50 years, or possibly not, you know not for much longer if 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 we decide to try to prevent it from being used. But then, of course, as things get closer, you've got all of this body of literature to build on, all of these people who have thought about this for a long time. This has been their career. They're like deeply invested in this topic and, they, and, and they've already made the mistakes that otherwise they would have to make where they're jumping into the topic just as it's becoming relevant. So, yeah, even though I think like predicting the, the long term is a bad idea, I, I would like to see more people trying to do this speculative you know, sociological analysis, political analysis, geopolitical analysis, so that well, when it is relevant, there's people you can just take off the shelf and say, you've been thinking about this for 30 years. <laughs> what, what, what do you reckon? Yeah, so I think what, one of the, the sobering things, looking at historical examples of, of this kind of thing happening in the past, is that technology does seem to be an evolutionary process. Because I, mean, I, I, of course, tend to think everything in history is an evolutionary process. But I think technology, very clearly so. It's a competitive process of different individuals and groups coming up with new ideas and starting to use them. And so something like... Uh, I say robot weapons is a big one. There's a big movement to stop robot war and uh, trying to put limits on what what actors are able to do with the uh, digital technology we've got now for replacing humans on the battlefield. The great problem, which people regularly raise about this, the great problem is, okay, so say we make some equivalent of uh, the Geneva Conventions about robot war and all these countries sign on to it. The well-behaved countries are more likely to obey it than the badly behaved countries. And that once it's been invented, it's there for other people to work with. And we live in a competitive world. And if it's possible to have fully autonomous robot fighter planes that can make decisions in nanoseconds, where even, say, a computer-assisted human flown fighter planes are going to take at least milliseconds to make their decisions. The nanosecond planes eat the millisecond planes for lunch. That's just the way it is. And if you have a law banning the millisecond planes, then the people who sign the law lose the wars and the nanosecond guys take over the world. And um, this, this is how evolution works. So while yeah, obviously we need to be worrying and thinking hard about what we can do to constrain the downside of new technologies. No one, as far as I'm aware, has ever yet succeeded in doing it. So we have to learn to live with these things rather than think you can just stop it in its tracks. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is getting a little bit specific here, but it seems like there is potentially a stable situation there, especially when you have a weapon, potentially like automated weapons that empower weaker countries where you can have the most powerful countries that are on top the like most likely hegemons get together and say we don't want these technologies to be developed we don't want weaker countries to be to be building them and so we're gonna get together and bully any country that that starts doing that and try to like you know impose sanctions on them potentially invade them like bomb the facilities and so on if they if they start doing it to, to some extent, I think that might be what's been going on with the fact that we've we definitely managed to slow down the development of chemical weapons and biological weapons and to like very massively reduce their use on the, on, on the battlefield. 
Uh, it seems like that that's in the interest potentially of the most powerful countries because it ensures that the weapons that are more expensive that only they can afford retain their their dominance. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think um, one way, what, sort of technologically oriented people like to look at the history of war in terms of these revolutions in military affairs. We get some breakthrough new technology or tactical system or something that uh, doesn't exactly render everything before it obsolete, but gives a great advantage to whoever adopts it. And these systems, you can trace them way back into prehistory. Some of them, I think probably most of them, favour the richest and most organised communities, but some of them don't. And sometimes, I mean, like you mentioned, um, the uh, introduction of the horse into warfare. Uh, The countries, the groups that benefited most from horse warfare were relatively disorganised, small populations of nomadic riders out on the Eurasian steppes, stretching from Hungary to China. And uh, the great ancient empires of uh, Rome and Persia in India and China, they never entirely highly got on top of this mounted warfare thing, in large part because it's just so much cheaper and easier to raise enormous herds of horses out on the plains than it is uh, within Europe or India or places like this. So the balance of power shifted away from the great empires. And this was a lot of the reason behind why the Roman Empire disintegrated. And in modern times, this has always been great debate going on with every new weapon system of who benefits the most out of this system. And so nuclear weapons initially, uh, you've got to be the United States to even have nuclear weapons. Only the super, super powerful and rich can have those. But now, you know, North Korea can have nuclear weapons. These things sort of seep out by themselves. And what starts off as a great power system becomes a uh, can become a minor power system and, and the other way around as well. And a lot of the, the chemical agents... Um, it's, it's often unclear how these are going to work. Like when, uh, right after the, the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers, there was a lot of anxiety about anthrax attacks and other sort of chemical biological attacks. Um, you know, people were going to fly crop dust to planes over Chicago and give everybody anthrax and stuff. And, and it turned out, well, everybody who knows anything about this is saying, well, no. Uh, the concentrations you've got to produce are really, really high. You've got to have a really good lab and then you've got to have a really sophisticated delivery service. The, the terror anthrax bomb thing, that kind of isn't going to fly. Whereas other things, and also, of course, you have terrorist nuclear suitcase bombs and stuff, it's kind of not likely. Whereas other things like a dirty bomb, a regular bomb with just radioactive material packed around it, that is likely. That is not difficult to do at all. So different systems have very, very different effects. And are we, as we move into increasing importance of cyber warfare, are we now moving into an age where some pimply teenage kid in his parents' basement can bring down the whole European banking system or something? Um, Is this going to be the effect? Or there is some evidence to suggest that it's still it's still the really great powers like the US are the ones who actually do do the hard banging of heads together in the cyber front as well. Yeah, yeah. An audience member wrote in with this question, what macro history myths would Ian most like to see effectively debunked or, or killed off? <laughs> macro history myths. Uh, so actually, I'm sorry, can I ask you a clarification? So what, what sort of thing are we talking about? Oh, I, well, I guess, like, are, are there preconceptions among the general public, like things that people think about long term about, about, about big, big history that are, that are really off base? 
Yeah, well, I guess when I think about it, pretty much all of the the books I've written in the last 15 years or so have all been attempts to debunk macro history myths. And so like, yeah. Why the West Rules for Now, my first sort of big history book, that was taking aim at what I just thought were a lot of very stupid theories about Western dominance, of which the, the genetic one was the most stupid of them, that there's something biologically superior about white Europeans uh, that makes it inevitable that white Europeans are going to dominate the planet. Because there's just glaringly obvious evidence against this. Like, if that's the case, why was China the most advanced power on Earth for 1,200 years? That is just ridiculous. It raises the question, yeah. yes. Um, although, interestingly, on that one, um, while I was writing that book, that was while a lot of the new DNA information was coming out. We were beginning to realise just how profound a lot of the genetic differences around the world are, that there really are big genetic differences. And that race, while it's a, a made-up kind of category, it's an approximation of something more real and uh, genetic distributions. But no one has yet found any evidence of any connection between any genetic distribution among Homo sapiens and the balance of political power on the planet. I mean, the, the race theory for why the West Rules is just absurd. And I, I took aim at a few other theories as well, but that was kind of the main one. Then with the book War, What Is It Good For? There, I guess I was taking aim at this really widespread idea that the world is getting more and more violent. It just isn't. Uh, it could do. And the great sort of built-in bad thing about, if I'm right about this theory, that increasingly powerful governments drive down the rates of violent death towards zero. As governments get increasingly powerful, of course, they increase their power to destroy. Uh, so nuclear-armed governments, it's safer to live under a nuclear-armed government than under a, a medieval government. And yet, if something goes wrong, then the nuclear-armed government can go so much wronger than bad King John of England could ever go. And so all my books have been uh, a little bit like, I guess, foragers, farmers and fossil fuels. There I was taking aim at what I think of as a sort of slightly simplistic theory that just somehow we've got it all figured out, that we know what good and evil are and right and wrong are. And well, I think particularly you know, people in philosophy departments and ethics centres and universities are often convinced that they've got it all worked out. And the, the challenge for them is to basically write rule books for how the rest of uh, we unenlightened people should interpret the world around us, which I think it's just very difficult for a historian to buy into that. It means that for you know, 5,000 years, pretty much the entire population of the world got it wrong. They couldn't tell right from wrong. And that just strikes me as absolutely insane. But on the other hand, saying there is no right and wrong, everything is completely relative, that kind of strikes me as insane as well. And so the goal there was to come up with some theory which allows you to understand how things that we now think are wrong could seem right to people in a different society, in a different world. But that doesn't mean that they are right in some transcendent kind of way, or that we are wrong to believe what we believe. Okay, we're almost out of time, but I've got a personal question or two before we go. First off, have you ever had any really magical or striking moments on any of your archaeological digs over the years? Yeah, I, and people will sometimes ask, what's the best thing I've ever found on a dig? And uh, I've actually never found anything very exciting, uh, which is well, it's the way we do archaeology now. We've got museums full of really cool stuff. And so we're out there trying to dig up the animal bones and the and the carbonized seeds and whatever. So we don't find the gold because we're not looking in the right places. But probably the, my favorite memory from archaeology was back when I was a student digger. And we were excavating a medieval abbey in England that had been closed down by Henry VIII and then turned to a farmhouse and forgotten about and we're digging it up and we found the old the old 14th century crypt where all the abbots were buried and 
If you were a really important abbot, you'd be buried in a lead coffin, which was yeah, super prestigious, super expensive. And these things were airtight. So your body, it's going to decay. There's bacteria in your body that will eat it up and it liquefies, but it can't go anywhere because it's airtight, sealed lead coffin. And this was sort of a, a big deal thing. Uh, the coffin was being taken out of the ground. It's going to go off to a, a local museum. And the mayor of the city of Stoke-on-Trent and other people came for this lifting of the coffin and they start Winching, it's, I mean, it cost, weighs many tons. They've got a crane, chains, winching it out of the ground. And somebody has done the chains wrong. And the, the pressure is wrong. And the coffin starts splitting open. And all of this liquefied abbot dumps out all over the, the mare. The mare of the... Oh. It was it, one of my finest moments. I was convinced after that that every excavation was going to be like this. Everything was going to be wonderful. Most of them, sadly, not. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, People can't see my face, but I, I, I'm a little bit disgusted. <laughs> a bit of a hygiene freak. So, yeah, okay. It, that's an interesting mental image. Humor is disgusting. Nasty people. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. One last final question. What's the most unfair criticism you've ever received, in, in your opinion? Unfair criticism. Well, because we all think that all the criticisms are unfair. So it's hard to single out one person as the most evil I've ever dealt with. There's so many of them. Um, but uh, this is something that well, it just taught me to take the whole thing with a grain of salt. I, I did a, a cluster of books. Three books all came out in the mid-2010s. So they're all getting reviewed in the newspapers around about the same time, the middle of the 2010s. And um, so I read one review telling readers that I was not to be trusted because I was clearly a card-carrying communist of the worst kind who knew which way the political winds blew. And so I thought, well, hmm, I don't think that's actually true. But then another review slightly later saying, ah, this author, this author is just a typical academic. He's not a Marxist, but he's left of centre and he's just so conceited and thinks he knows everything. I thought, well, I don't know that that's really true either. And then I read another one saying, well, this author is a neoconservative. This is the only thing you say about him. Don't believe anything he says. And from that, I concluded, I think is the obvious conclusion, that the minute a reviewer begins telling the readers about the author's politics and that how the author's politics shaped everything the author is saying, just stop reading the review at that point. This tells you nothing about the author, only tells you about the reviewer's politics. So, yeah, that was a, a good lesson. I think it's just so easy for academics to... You, I mean, um, there's the most popular political dismissal nowadays is to say somebody is conservative. Blanket dismissal, which means we do not need to engage with anything this person has said. Now, a lot of conservatives have been really smart people. Half the population in most countries votes for a right-wing party. Do you, are you honestly saying that nothing that a person whose views are right of centre or left of centre has got to say is to be listened to? It's just ridiculous. Yeah, and so yeah, when I was preparing for this for this conversation, I, I read a couple of reviews of your book uh, books, and there was there was one that really stood out to me as uh, I was. It made various claims about what you'd said in the book, which made me reflect that possibly the author had not read beyond perhaps the first chapter. It was a long book, so I understand that this this review, I think it might have been in the Guardian, uh, perhaps hadn't didn't get all the way <laughs> to, to, to the final chapters. Um, yeah, how do you maintain your equ- equanimity when um, yeah people are. Uh, giving you a really hard time and it's not even obvious that they have read uh, what, what you had to say. Well, I, t- you know, I, I tend to tell myself, well, if they're saying such terrible things about me, clearly they haven't read my book. It <laughs> couldn't be possible yeah. <laughs> to think so, so badly of me. But um, no, I think, again, something you learn. Uh, you know, there's a, 
these big history books almost always have some kind of political dimension to them. They're about big questions that people feel strongly about. And one of the things I realised is when I started getting asked to come and speak to politicians and political groups about history, this is a fundamental difference between scholarship and politics. Scholarship is about the truth and politics is about power. And these are two different things. If you choose to write a book about big topics that people think are important, then you've chosen to stray into the political terrain. And uh, hopefully you still remain firmly based in scholarship. And your book is the truth as you see it. You might be wrong, but you're not a liar. This is the truth as you see it. But the people who are now reading your books are judging it sometimes by completely different criteria. And lying or distorting what's in your book is not necessarily the same kind of wickedness as it is within the academic community. When it's kind of the, the ultimate the ultimate crime for an academic is to lie about the truth. Uh, in the political world, the ultimate crime is not to get elected. So if saying something bad about your book will help you in a political goal, then for many people, that makes it legitimate and worthwhile. And people, when, when I feel this is being done to me, I try to remind myself, well, I brought this on myself. I was perfectly happily writing books about ancient Greek archaeology, where these sorts of problems didn't come up all that much. I decided I didn't just want to engage with the small questions. I, I felt that the skills I'd got allowed me to say something useful about the big questions. So if then the sort of people who you know are reading your books treat you in the sort of way that you know they will, you really, you shouldn't be too surprised by it. Yeah. You managed to be tolerant of forager values and, and of farmer values and even of the values of political activists. So a, a, a true liberal at heart. That's right. <laughs> My guest today has been uh, Ian Morris. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Ian. Well, thanks for having me on the show. This was a lot of fun. Just before you go, I wanted to let you know that my colleague Neil Bauman is currently running what he is describing as a long-termist census, which you can access at 80,000hours.org slash census. It's an attempt to build a database of people who might, either, either now or sometime in the future, be interested in joining or possibly even launching a project aimed at improving humanity's long-term prospects. Oh, and uh, to be clear, that also includes uh, current staff at, uh, at long-termist projects. There's two goals that Neil has in mind with this. The first is to build a spreadsheet of people who folks might want to get in touch with when they're hiring or looking for a co-founder. The hope is that a list like this might greatly speed up matchmaking and allow plenty of people to get jobs who otherwise just wouldn't find out about suitable roles in time. The second goal is to help us better understand the skill sets and current employment of people who are currently really quite interested in long-termism. To ensure that the database is useful for matchmaking purposes, your responses obviously might be shared with any of several dozen organizations doing long-termist work when they're, when they're out looking to hire. Recruitment can be really difficult, and it can be a big bottleneck to building new organizations and starting new projects. In fact, folks have been asking 80,000 Hours to make a shareable list of people they can hire like this for, for years. So we're finally going to have one, and fingers crossed it will be as useful as it seems like it ought to be. If you ever might want to work in long-termism, I imagine filling out the form would be an extremely high-impact use of your time. If you just answer the required questions, you can probably fill it out in, in a couple of minutes. Though if I were doing the optional questions, which seems, seems worthwhile, I think it would take me more like 10 or 15 minutes. Again, you can find the census form at 80,000hours.org slash census. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.